Make some noise, ladies and gentlemen, for Paul Mooney. Wake up, nigga. A nigga wake up calls a bitch. We have style, we got flavor, we got rhythm. I mean, the black man in America is the most copied man on this planet, bar none. Everybody want to be a nigga, but nobody want to be a nigga. How about that question? Cal Challenge just admitted she was a nigga. The rest of them need to break down and admit it too. All right, everybody, here we are. I'm here with Shug. Shug, how you feeling? Oh, man, Mike, it's been a tough week, man. Did you know last week our fan club broke up? I I wasn't aware. My uh, secretary didn't tell me. Yeah, yeah. That one guy, he died. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Yeah. <laughs> but here we are, uh, episode 53, a.k.a. Shug me the Paul Mooney. Okay, out of respect to uh, the godfather of comedy, as he was told, Mr. Paul Mooney. Uh, passed away this week at 79. Uh, of course, every time we do an episode, I feel like we're doing a tribute one way or another with different, uh, different individuals. Uh, but today is important because I feel like we've mentioned Paul Mooney several times. I think we mentioned him last week, too, uh, especially with uh, Mindful of Comedy, which is it's something that's up on YouTube now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we're really into you know, stand-up comedy. Uh, one of our first episodes we ever did uh, for Shook Me the Mooney, we mentioned the Artie Lang fiasco uh, situation. Uh, but yeah, with Paul Mooney, no relation. Uh, he is less known than, let's say, like a Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy or, like, you know, George Carlin, people of that uh, tier. Uh, but if you are familiar or if you actually do some research and find out that he was kind of the man behind a lot of these individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're, I'm going to get into his whole uh, bio and everything, but Chug, uh, what's your... Uh, what is what? What, was, what did Paul mean? What what does Paul Mooney Mooney mean to you? Well, first of all, uh, the the one person I first thought of when outside of Paul Mooney when he passed away was Dave Chappelle, because I was twelve between the ages of like twelve and fourteen when Chappelle show came out, and he introduced me to. Paul Mooney, the, the the man, the myth, the legend, and um, it's just incredible. Like Dave Chappelle got his own show, and one of the things, first things he did was like he he brought like a comedic legend who was unbeknownst to a lot of people out to the forefront. Like, and he introduced him. It's like he wrote for Richard Pryor, all of this stuff. You know he was huge, and all the, and like the 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 third person I thought of was John Witherspoon, who we also we also lost um last year. Uh, a lot of these these guys, you know them from being like you know minor, like in the narrative version, in a narrative way. 
um, John Witherspoon from being on Wings Brothers and being in Boomerang and House Party and stuff like that. You know them from being like, you know, side characters and Paul Mooney from being on Chappelle's show. You know them from just appearing on these shows. But in the late 70s and early 80s, when really only like Richard Pryor and like Red Fox were like the only huge black comedians, you know, these were the guys on like that next level that were really behind and working with these guys. So Paul Mooney meant a lot to me. And and the joke of his that I always remembered, and I think Mike, uh, you you remember me saying this a lot when we were working when it was like a vagrant, like white mm. dude walking in. I'd be like, oh my god, what a what a waste of, of white skin. <laughs> Yeah, and my joke that I always bring up, and I bring up like in, in as a joke and as serious, was the complexion for the protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because that's from the a famous stand-up special he had that I watched like all the time late at night. I think it was on Showtime. I think it was called like the Godfather of Comedy, and he was sitting on the stool, and he had that delivery where he's like, he act like he doesn't know what he's talking about, and he'd be like, "Who's that guy? Who's that like? Who's that guy with the? He's wearing the ECW hat, and the guy like he's like describing me, right? And then someone in the audience will shout out like. Michael, Michael, he mentioned my name. Oh, are you sick of him? And then like that's like he had that communal vibe, uh, that it actually um, had, had kind of like roots with like the black clubs in stand-up comedy. Uh, another thing that I first saw him in was Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Okay, remember he had, he played that character, and uh, yeah, so, yeah, so he yes. Yeah, he is a relative. I don't forget. I forget the actual relations relations between Damon Wayne's character and and Paul Mooney. But he kind of, uh, they have a moment in the movie where he's kind of uh, gives him the idea to do, because uh, Damon Wayne's character, which is a theme in Paul Mooney's work too, is uh, he can't get past, uh, there's a ceiling, and he works in media and TV, and there's a ceiling that he's trying to go through. And he creates a show that's kind of like a modern day minstrel show. Uh, that's the story of Bamboozled. Uh, but it just has a historical, like black comedy clubs. That's how a lot of their, like someone sitting on a stool, very, very back and forth with the crowd. Uh, sometimes stand up is very regimental and it's just like, that's called heckling. But they had like people yell in the crowd and it was like part of the show. Uh, another thing, uh, you mentioned Red Fox and Richard Pryor. So, like, he met Richard Pryor in 1968 when he was starting his career. Uh, Richard Pryor show, we brought that up uh, quite recently. Uh, he was a writer for that show. Uh, and then he was also a writer for uh, Sanford and Son, which is like, you know, everyone remembers Red Fox in the show, but uh, people in the writing room, you might not remember, you might not know. And that was Paul Mooney. Uh, he, he, another role he had was a, a rewriter for SNL and the show Fridays, which was a, like a different version of SNL. Uh, Shug, we recently, you sent me the clip recently. Uh, very actually, iconic, yeah, very iconic sketch between Chevy Chase I, and Richard Pryor. I did Pryor. not know until Paul Mooney died um, a few days ago. I did not know that was him who wrote that. But the thing about Richard Pryor, the, the great thing about Richard Pryor is like when you look up the Richard Pryor and you look up the cast list, like you see a Paul Mooney, you see a John Witherspoon, you see a Robin Williams. So if anything proves that real recognize real look at the cast list on the richard pryor show and the people that wrote for richard pryor because as great of a comedian as richard pryor was like he was the person i saw a talent in all these other great um comedic people 
And guess what? Another thing I didn't know until now, uh, doing my research, uh, something that we both grew up on, um, Homie the Clown is credited to Paul Mooney. Okay. Homie the Clown from In Living Color. What a great character that's still... Yeah, right. Homie, don't play that. Mm-hmm. Like, I can just like, that's one of the great characters that's 30 years old, uh, 30 years plus. And then Living Color ha- kind of is a, much of a show like like the Richard Pryor where you had like a Robin Williams, you had a Jim Carrey, you know, it was very like that. Uh, it just was about like talent. Uh, and then another thing, me and you growing up, we had the Chappelle show. Uh, Axel Black Man was uh, one of the bits, right? And uh, Nico mm-hmm. Thomas was another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the things you said, and it's something uh, um, we kind of like touched on a little bit in the um, in the episode before the last one, where we were talking about people using, you know, basically like the cultural appropriation thing. And Paul Mooney had the best um, phrase for that especially when you're talking about like white people who try to, you know, take over, um, try to try to use black culture to like, you know, boost themselves. Um, I forgot this girl's name. What's her name? The, the one from TikTok now, like she stole all the TikTok dances from the, um, I don't know. She got like a very like white girl name. And then mm. you're talking about like, um, Miley Cyrus, mm. And the term, he, the, the phrase he said, he was like, everybody want to be a nigga, but don't want to be a nigga. Meaning like a lot of people want to take, you know, the black, like the other thing, the thing he said directly after it was the black man is the most mimicked person in the world, but also the most like vilified person in the world at the same time. So a lot of people, they want to use our like coolness and our culture and stuff like that to like push themselves forward. But then when it comes to actual black issues, like these people like nowhere to be found or they'll do a lot of like performative um, allyship, you know, oh, mm. I, I put Black Lives Matter in my bio. So, you know, I care about black people rather than, all right, I'm going to use my platforms like much in the same way that like David Bowie, first thing mm. he did when he got on MTV does an interview and he's like, why do, why do you not have black people on your, your channel? It's like, yeah. and the interview is like, I don't know, you know, maybe, you know, our audience is probably not ready for that. And it's like, well, you know, Michael Jackson has sold more records than I have, but you show me, you know, like I, that was like actual allyship and Miley Cyrus, she was doing all that ass shaking and all that shit. But I didn't see her in like Ferguson or at any like Black Lives Matter rallies. So that's why he met. That's what he meant by what he said. Right. I, I think uh, back then he was talking about like a Justin Timberlake a lot. It was like everything but like the, the stress or something. Like that. I forgot what he he would say a lot of things like that. Uh, I never watched the show. Were you a fan? Because we, we're talking about we're talking about Richard Pryor. We're talking about uh, uh, Robert Townsend. We're talking about like Eddie Murphy. Uh, Dave Chappelle, but he also uh, worked on a show that had Kevin Hart, right? Remember that show, um, The Real Ho- Husbands of Hollywood? Yeah. Apparently, yeah. He, 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 he worked on that as well, apparently. Like, he mm-hmm. had his credits on that. So that's only 10 years ago. Uh, while he was promoting that show, uh, he, he, there's a quote, the most recent quote, it was like from 10 years ago. Uh, he said, everyone has finally caught up with me. When I did it, it, was, uh, it wasn't popular. Uh, I was considered a troublemaker. 
he used a lot of words like that, like troublemaker. I was making a fuss and everything. Uh, Hollywood, uh, now Hollywood now is acting like it's all new. That's something I always bring up too, where like something happened now and people are thinking like, it's the first time it happened. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's generational though. I feel like, um, I feel like it's some, sometimes it's like the dude that busses down the door and then when he busts down the door, like the security guards, like they beat the shit out of him. Mm. But then the people that are inside the room, they look at like him getting beat up by the security guards. And it's like, oh, this is kind of messed up. I think we should start letting other people in. Mm. And then people forget the fact that like this dude bust down the door and opened the door for you guys mm. and made it easier for you to come in and do what you're doing now. And I think he, Paul Mooney is definitely one of those people. Yeah. So again, generational like 70s. He has a... Uh a lot of famous classic moments uh, in like in the 80s. And we talked about Living Color. Another show that uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, I've rewatched it a bunch of times. It's the Larry Sanders show. Because uh, I love like, you know, the whole like, late night talk show scene and everything. Uh, Paul Mooney ha- plays a character in one of the episodes. Uh, Larry Sanders, played by Gary Shandling. Uh, oh, he's a very, well. RIP on another one, yeah. Uh, he's like a needy uh, person, you know, with just like a mess. So he, until he goes out on stage, he's just a total mess. So Beverly is his personal assistant who does everything for him, uh, a black woman. And uh, so they do a lot of jokes, no, not jokes, but they touched on a lot of like uh, stuff that was going on. A lot of things that are going on now was being touched on in the 90s. This is like mid 90s. Um, but one of the episodes, her cousin uh, shows up and it's Paul Mooney, and um, he works for like Baltimore uh, Public Access or something like that, uh, like a like a, ta- a city's public access news. And uh, he's like, "Hey, try to get me a job here in LA. I want to work here." And she's like, "Kind of, why are you nervous? Ask him. Can you do everything for him? Let him do you a favor. You know, like, come on, uh, try to get me a job. So sort of like that." And then uh, you know, uh, Gary Shandling, Larry Sanders is like, "Does he have experience?" Yeah, he works for the uh, public access, you know, PBS type in Baltimore. And he's kind of like, that's not good enough for like uh, t- Tonight Show type show. And basically the point of the that scene and that episode arc uh, is that how can he have experience on a big show like that if you don't give him the opportunity? Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like, you know, this was like uh, mid-90s and uh, Firm of Action was a big deal. Uh, so that was kind of like, you know, Pullman, he was doing that and you know, I grew up watching that's that a, show, so I was in my head, you know. Yeah, it's relevant today because a lot of exactly. places, you know, where black people, you know, wouldn't get an opportunity, it's because, you know, they'll they'll say like this person is an experience or they're not this or they're not that. And it's like meanwhile, like Conan O'Brien's like nephew is an intern on these shows and he has experience because somebody, you know, somebody told him like, Oh, that's Conan O'Brien's nephew. Guess what? And there, there's an episode of Larry Sanders. That's just, just about that. It's uh, uh Gary Shandling's uh, Larry Sanders is a uh, executive producer gets um, his son, a gig as like a, like a runner, you know, like an intern and it's mm-hmm. Colin Quinn. I have his book right here, but Colin Quinn, and he doesn't want to be there. He fucks everything up, and he, he keeps getting all these opportunities. He doesn't want to be there. He openly says, like, oh, I just took an hour, a two-hour uh, whatever. Like, the yogurt's all messed up, but they can't fire him. Like, he has that complexion for the protection, you know, like straight up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, again, I love watching that show because it's about behind the scenes, and Paul Mooney was always behind the scenes working on things. Uh, eventually, his, his face got out there. But a lot of his work up until – the last few stand-ups I saw in the last 15 years, 20 years was about representation 
not okay. just in front of the camera, but behind, because uh, like you, you, you brought up before, like uh, niceties or just like the, what's the word yet you use for uh, like, uh, it looks like you're doing something, but you're not like you mentioned it before, like the niceties of like, oh, miming, like you're, you're doing something just for the show of it. You're not really getting anything done. Uh, but when you're behind the camera, performative, okay. Yeah. Uh, but he talked about behind the scenes, we're getting people behind the camera, a lot more things can get done. And uh, and it's interesting that this comes up because one of the topics we're also going to talk about today has to do with uh, Shug's new favorite show, The Bachelor franchise, Bachelor, mm -hmm. Bachelorette. Well, we're going to talk about... Uh, that was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you find it very interesting. Let's just put yeah. it there. So Rachel Lindsay, uh, was, we'll get into who she is, but... Uh, she was one of the the first bachelorette of color. Uh, the first. She, the first, yes. Mm -hmm. There's only there's only three people we can talk about, but uh, we're gonna get into that because what she has to say about the franchise and her role in it uh, gonna, has I'm, to do with in front of the camera and behind the camera. I'm gonna do a lot of apologizing when we get to that. Yeah, so that's up on the. Because uh, I like I like to admit when I'm wrong. I think. This doesn't really have nothing much to do with anything, but I think a lot of people don't like to be wrong, but being wrong is like a beautiful thing because it's something, it's an opportunity to learn. It's an extra educational moment. Um, I'd rather people accept being wrong and um, trying to learn from it rather than being wrong and strong, which is basically just, you know, I'm wrong, but you know what, listen, I don't care. This is the way I do things. This is why I say things, blah, 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 blah. So, and not when we get there, like I will admit I was wrong. If we had the, uh, an intern or someone just willing to write down everything we say, we could look it up. We could actually, we would actually make side by side, like, Oh, I said this, but no, I was wrong, but we don't have that time right now. So just, Take yeah, our word for I mean, it. Take listen, our word for it. We do. If we if we knew, we knew. When you see what I say, you could watch the episode of The Bachelor on Race on YouTube. It's its own episode. It's about like 40, 45 minutes long. You could skip through. I don't care. But you will see what I'm talking about when I get there. So we're also going to talk about... Um... Uh, another another docu series on Netflix has a another murder mayhem you know serial killer, but the reason why we're talking about it is because it's a little twist on it. So we decided to talk about the Sons of Sam, uh, a descent into darkness. Uh, that just it's, it's it came out a couple of weeks ago. We're going to talk about it. Uh, another docu series we've been uh, talking about the last couple of weeks uh, is the A and E's biography, WWE Legends. This week's uh, installment is about one of our favorites of all time uh show michaels the heartbreak kid uh we're just going to talk about how um because there's so many things that talk that talk about wrestlers lives like dvds and other docuseries and like shooting interviews we're just going to say how they did it this time and give up give our thoughts on it and uh yeah i mean is that okay mm -hmm. can we go on to the next topic is that okay yeah you're allowed to speak all right thank you we're going to talk about Joe Rogan's uh, recent uh, stance on the woke mob. Uh, so we're going to get into that now. Um, okay, so anytime they show Joe Rogan and, you know, it's either going to be left or right. They're going to, you know. So when you first saw that, uh, what did you think about? 
uh, my god i didn't give you permission to address me but i will allow it <laughs> yeah we're making jokes here because um joe rogan had said that pretty soon straight white men like my boy mike here will not be able to speak in public nor will they be able to go outside um which is an incredible statement um this was done in reaction to the quote-unquote woke mob um and i told mike i was like oh uh, according to joe rogan after a while you're gonna have to like be living vicariously through through me um yeah get an oculus uh goggles set now i just like do hey i'm going here i'm going out to the liquor store hey well we, at 12 o'clock uh show's going to the liquor store i'm gonna go through i'm gonna watch it <laughs> get my uh get my fill uh which is ironic because how did you hear about this how did you hear about joe rogan talking about this where straight white men aren't going to be able to talk on the the biggest platform and megaphone possible right this yeah, is the this right show has like yeah listen to this on spotify yeah you know ironically i haven't listened to i haven't watched or listened to joe rogan experience uh when they made the move because i used to watch it on youtube and uh yeah i liked it you know uh, before we get into this particular thing, I just want to say how I feel about the, his presentation in general. It's because I would watch it on YouTube, and it's kind of like the background noise because these shows would go on for like three and a half hours. They always had different type of guests. You would have like like a right wing type guy saying some outlandish shit about aliens crawling out of whatever, whatever, and then you would have Dave Chappelle on the next episode. So, you know, you would get some you get a little bit of everything. It was kind of like a buffet, not just like a, you know, which is cool. Uh, and I, I, I would think that I would find something new. I'm like, oh, wow. And then I would like deep dive into something else. Uh, but then if it's something that I know a lot about or I'm knowledgeable about it, Joe Rogan is completely talking out of his ass. Like he's just making, making shit up that's like, like backwards and just like uh, uh, just wrong. Like, like I know the fact, like I know something. Let's say like uh, there's 50 states in, Amer- in America um, on, the, on the flag. And then he'll say like there actually is uh, 58. Like – Right, and they're doing a new study. Yeah, and I'm just like, oh wow! Like if I didn't know, I'd be like, oh, there actually is 58. Mm-hmm. But you know, things like that, like all happen all the time, and especially like wrestling. Something so minute, silly as wrestling, he'll like say like, like he was like Bob Flair, yeah, he's 17 time champion. Like he like it's Ric Flair, like he like things like that. Yeah, but he says it with such bravado and such confidence, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you always see the guy next door, the, the other guy he's talking to, just like nodding, like drinking water and just nodding. <laughs> Kind of like how Shug is right now yeah. listening to me. <laughs> so, uh, so this one exactly, uh, this particular thing, he's been dancing on the fence, right, for a long time. No, like doing car doing wheels and stuff. You know, whatever he can. Yeah, but then he he goes uh, he goes to this crazy extreme, saying you won't be able to leave your house. Then he goes, we all got to be nice to each other. What the hell does that mean? Like, I have no idea what that means. Like, he's like. So what does it mean to you? Let's let's get back to the, uh, your. It's, it's funny as hell. Uh, it's totally like unrelated. But um, the other yesterday, um, I think it was Tulsi Gabbard. I guess they're in relate relation to something like Lori Lightfoot said. Okay. Um, who who is the black um female mayor of Chicago currently? And if you look at her policies and how she's handled things, how she's handled things with the police and cover-ups about, you know, killings of black um, unarmed or 
people of color unarmed in her city, like you see that she ain't, you know, all skin folk and kinfolk. But it said anti-white. And before I even opened why it was trending, I was like, I tweeted out, I was like, once you see this on trending, anti-white, I was like, you knew like comedy was abound. Um so when I heard the, the, the shit about Joe Rogan, you know, and the woke mob stuff, you know, I kind of think thought about like the stuff we talked about in the minefield of comedy, where it's like, yeah, you know, going forward is gonna be like pretty hard to navigate what's funny and what's not funny and what people will find offensive and what they won't, what could, you know, boost your career and what could like kill your career and stuff like that. And so I, I, I was kind of understanding there, but then when he started talking all this shit about like white, you know, straight white men aren't going to have this and aren't going to have that. The first shit I thought of, I was like, yo, straight white men have been doing what the fuck they wanted to do ever since they started like sailing out of Europe, maybe even before then. Um, so it's like, you know, now you're starting to see, you know, your um discriminatory and like inflammatory behavior being regulated i thought of like this tweet somebody tweeted it i forgot who tweeted it but it was saying that you know white you know powerful white men are so used to getting away or getting their way and getting away with things that what we, the rest of us, like people of color, women, um, the LGBT, et cetera, et cetera, have known as being consequences. They're calling cancel culture. Um, this was actually in relation, Mike, if you remember the trainer for the horse that won the Kentucky Derby, when it's found out that that horse got like PD stuff, um, got, mm-hmm. got found with PDs or, or was tested for PDs. And it's like, it's a horse. So I know that horse ain't taking his hoof and injecting itself. It was the trainer that did it. So the trainer was trying to say, oh, like, it's 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 cancel culture that's trying to get me. And I'm like, bro, like, nobody knew who the fuck you were until you won the Kentucky Derby. And nobody gave a fuck about who you were until this horse got found with PD. So how was it? I was like Bojack, Bojack Horseman uh, <laughs> storyline. Bojack Horseman. I can see that. I got to say up, man. Uh, I didn't hear about that Kentucky Derby because I don't give a shit about the Kentucky Derby. I'm joking. Um, but yeah, I mean, going on with that, like, I understand the like the territory of like, oh, I, uh, infallible. Like, I can say whatever I want without any consequences in in a realm of comedy or or just a public figure as Joe Rogan. But he's talking about like going to the store and stuff like that, where you have to tippy toe and um, watch what you say and stuff like that. But you take it to such an extreme where it's like. Uh, it's the same thing where people get mad. Like earlier, we we're talking about the '90s with like uh, with Paul Mooney, and then like one of the episodes had to do with uh, uh, affirmative action, where you're saying like, "Oh no, like you're, t- you're that's not fair because uh, I'm working on this." You know, like it's not fair. Like, but you got to remember the whole thing with the, the race. Like, if you want to use the uh, the figurative race, like you're already starting like ten paces ahead. I think the word now they use is equity. Is that the word? Have you heard that before? Equity and um, where it's not just like starting at the same line. Now you're, you're, now you start off with opportunities. It's not just starting at the same line because even if you're at the same line, you still have different potential already built in. Um, 
that's just another thing that's that that has been popping up. With, I mean, uh, well, it's it's you know, I, 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 I from it's like you're starting off, like I think people are recognizing that we're starting off in the same race, but they're not identifying the fact that we're talking about there's inherent biases in people. There are. You know, early enough, case in point, like, you know, my brother is autistic and, you know, he just goes off of like the shit my parents say and stuff like that. So we were walking um, back from like this restaurant and a guy, like a black guy and his girlfriend, like he was pushing a stroller and he had on like um, his hat backwards and he had dreads and stuff like that, right? So he stopped me and he was asking me directions to a particular restaurant. So I was like, and I stopped and I like calculated my, I was like, cause I'm new to over here. So I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That place like, yeah, it's all the way down that way, blah, 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 blah. So the guy went and my brother is like, wow, like. Showed like you're really brave. Like I wouldn't have like answered this question. I would have been scared or whatever, whatever. And I'm like, why would you be scared? It's just a guy. It's a guy, a, a girl, and a kid. And it's just like how that guy looked. You've been told like that's somebody that's medicine. I'm like, that's a dude spending his afternoon with his family. I'm like, there's nothing. There should be nothing medicine about him. Um. So so I think like people discount like the inheritance like yeah it's like everybody feels like it's all even now because it's not not Jim Crow it's not segregated it's not segregated um you had a black president that's always the, the shit people like point point out to you have a female vice president who's also um African American and of Indian descent so a lot of people point to those things and it's like it's it's equal now and it's like nah it's still it's a lot of work that has to be done for equality to be there but going back to the Joe Rogan thing the, the way I, I thought of it I just thought about it this morning and we've been thinking about this topic for like a while I was like imagine like the person who is like the most famous like blackface minstrel like entertainer of like whenever right whenever actually was like acceptable and popular right and then somebody turned to him and was like yo bro like that type of shit is not like yo like black you know you can't offend black people anymore like they're people you can't be making fun of them and you know putting black paint on your face to act like a black person it's not cool anymore like, it's like Joe Rogan right now, when he's saying all that shit, like, oh, white guys won't be able to, like, go outside and speak. It's like, you you sound like the guy who, you know, was using blackface, the last, like, the most famous blackface comedian. It's like, what do I do now? Mm. And that just highlights the fact that, like, you were probably not funny to begin with. Like, if you're a white guy and you can't do comedy, that's not offensive to LGBT people knowing what we know um african-american people knowing what we know now women knowing what we know now 
um, all these different groups of people that didn't have a voice before, like, you're not funny. I think that's exactly what we said in the mindful comedy thing. Like, if you don't know how to navigate these things and still be funny, then you're not funny. And then you need to find another line of work. Right. That's talking about the comedy. So now uh, a lot of things that that I got from what Joe Rogan was saying has like uh, a conspiracy because he's all about conspiracy theories and stuff. But uh, I think what he's touching on is the fear that um, like the whatever the woke is, I think that's still a thing. Uh, woke mob is trying they're out for like revenge or something like that. So that he's coming from a fear thing where, OK, he's taking it to the that type of extreme is what I'm getting where it's like um, basically paying for the sins of all the other generations of like what like white people did he's basically he's like he's um what do you what's the word again he's um what's the word you always you always say dog whistle right mm-hmm. yeah he's kind of doing that where it's like oh there's this fear that like okay we're they're out for just the, the agenda really is just to completely take over and it would be the same as it was 250 years ago but now it's going to be in reverse that's kind of like the thing he's like touching on uh, the QAnon uh, conspiracies and stuff. And he knows that's like part of the people that like him. Well, first, first of all, in like response to that, Mike, we're going to turn on our TV tonight and you can go on Fox News and you will still see Tucker Carlson. You'll still see. Sean Hannity, you'll see Lauren Ingram, you'll see um what's the new guy? Matter of fact, this guy, he's probably one of the worst ones. And oh. his whole new show Gutfield. is about yeah, Gutfield, where his whole new show is like anti like woke and anti yeah cancel culture. So and he got a whole new show. So I'm like, how are you saying like you're not being like how are you saying you're being canceled? This is a guy that got a whole new show that's saying my show is anti cancel cancel culture anti-woke um movement um anti this anti that i'm like he's got a new show so obviously there's sponsors behind it advertisers behind it like you 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 still have the opportunity like you're you're still being you still have the um exposure you know what i'm saying like if something like i can understand if these things was like dying down and like if you started seeing Fox News becoming a lot more like liberal or a lot more um, less slanted, then you'd be like, all right, like maybe he's onto something. Maybe you're not. Um, people are kind of like folding into, you know, this left, left wing, like super liberal type of um, mentality. Thing. Yeah. So th- what Joe Rogan said is like something straight out of. Uh, that type of Fox News show. So I watch it every once in a while, like just to what, like Fox News is so bizarre to me because it feels like it's kind of like a dawn of the dead, post-apocalyptic like news thing. Everything's weird colors and bright. And I guess I'll let me, I'm just thinking about this now. Like it feels like it's like a minstrel show for what are crazy white people. Like that's what this, this if you want to say a crazy white person, oh my God, Tucker Carlson seems like he's like a, a puppet. Like it's bizarre. Uh, it, it's just like, that that's the headline they would actually say. There's this one lady, the not her. There's another one. Um, 
it was like, the, you know, at the end of the news where it's like the, the, the last second of the news broadcast is kind of like, a, hey, did you hear about this on Facebook or YouTube? And just the way she said it, it was just like, not cringe, but just like, oh, my God. Like, it's the girl with the deep voice. You know what I'm talking about? She's like, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be your future. This is the next whatever, whatever. And, yeah, and it's a straight up just a video version of or a video package version of what Joe Rogan said. So it's not something that he saw like on Fox News. It's the same like uh, I mean, crazy. I knew, uh, I knew like Fox News was like Twilight Zone when Alton Sterling and Philando Castillo got killed. And you turn it to CNN, you turn it to MSNBC, CNBC, local news, all these different channels on the internet and stuff like that. You would see stuff about Alton Sterling and Fernando Castillo. And then you turn it to Fox News and they're talking about like Hillary Clinton and like Benghazi. Yeah, it, so, it, is, it is Laura Ingram. But yeah, but uh, Benghazi, they, they start talking about that and they don't even talk about January 6th. You know, okay. think about that as a comparison. If this happened in January 6th and it was the opposite, oh my God, there'd be a full on, we would, we would, we wouldn't be able to leave the house. It would be like a straight up like military like situation. And like a person like Joe Rogan, it's like the fact that I think like today it's, it's, it's a opportunity for a lot of young white guys or well, young white street men, for them to be the generation or the first generation that can do things where everybody is like included and nobody's being um, discriminated against, and moving past that shit. Like it, I I look at it as as an opportunity and not like a um hurdle. And that's like the other thing too. Like a lot of these guys like Joe Rogan, like they going back to the great Paul Mooney. It's like, they want to be victims. like uh, Yeah. Like they want to be like victimized, but, or they feel victim. They want the feeling of being victimized, but they don't want to be actually victimized. So they enjoy the feeling. So it's all of this like, Oh my God, I feel like these handcuffs are around me. Blah, 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 blah. Like I can't do this. I can't say this. Da, 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 da. Um, we're in like for centuries, like a lot of black people were like, you know, like a muzzle was put upon them and they were gagged and, you know, women, they were gagged and they couldn't speak out. Gay people, they weren't, they were gagged and couldn't speak out. Trans people, they were gagged and couldn't speak out. So, I mean, if anything, it's, it's actually inclusive if, like, white guys start to feel, um, if they feel marginalized. So all those... Or uh, they were actually marginalized, I should say, not how not feeling marginalized. Maybe they would start to understand where marginalized groups are coming from. And all those groups, they uh, all these movements were niche. And um, if you were part of the community, you're the only only people involved were people part of the community. So now that it's broadened, and now it's more like all over the place. Um, it, that's the difference now, where it's like like if I, like I say, I always bring up that I worked in uh, the village, uh, with the LGBTQ whatever you know everything it is now. Um, I, I was educated on all that stuff like in the 2000s, working down there. 
but that was just that one part of Manhattan. And then it grew out to like the whole world, pretty much like uh, a lot of the stuff they did there. Um, so now it's now that it's going to be it's going to be more mainstream. Uh, that's that's the whole point, because in media, a lot of things have been put into uh, so, like subgenres and just like for marketing, like everything's like, all right, so you're into this. So we're going to have a gay channel logo. We have a gay channel. But people, everyone watches Logo, and then you have BET. You know, this is for the, you know, this is BET. You know, everything was put compartmentalized for a reason. Now, not even just people in, in, in real life, but like a lot of the media are figuring out how do we broaden everything? How is this going to be not, because are we have, we're having a channel logo now? People be like, oh, why? Only gay people can watch this? Like everything is getting flipped on its end. And uh, uh, so if everything's going to be general now, that's why we're having the whole people bumping elbows and like getting nervous and like, oh, now I can't say anything because I'm gonna offend you and things like that. Because everything before that, it was purposely engineered where like you wouldn't be offended because this is only for you. We made this for you. Now everything is getting more open. It, that that's like we're living in it now. So there's no answer right now. We're solely living in it. If that makes sense? Because there's so many outlets now that we all see it. We all see everyone's prior to this was all like only straight white men type thing, you know, only gay, this, this. Now we're all seeing everything at the same time. And now people are like, you're encroaching on my beliefs and stuff like that. And like, hey, can I say this still? And that's 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 the result of things getting more open now. If you see a lot of mainstream things going on. So this week, um, just hey, another typical day watching the Yankees. And I know where you start watching uh, history being made. And uh, if anyone, have, has anyone seen, um, uh, Shog's reaction video to uh, what day was that with the Yankees? Wednesday night. Oddly enough, like I didn't even start watching the game until like the sixth or seventh inning. Um, it was funny because I told, like, I was I was messaging you, Mike, and I was like, "Oh, well, you know, like we know we're gonna talk about like Joe Rogan and HBK." But like sports, it shouldn't be really be not in much because the only thing really this week with sports was like the playing games, which I wasn't like too um enthused about. I support having it going forward, but the games themselves didn't really involve anything I had rooting interest in except for rooting against LeBron James. Mm. But the only other thing, the big story was with Tony Rusa and your mean Mercedes hitting a home run and him supposedly being wrong mm. for hitting a home run uh due to the unwritten rules of baseball. Uh it was uh, like a funny thing because they were up 16 15 to 4 and Mercedes was um they the the twins had brought in a um position player I think it was like the catcher one of the catchers and he was throwing and he was throwing like 49 miles per hour just lobbing balls over the plate just to kind of eat up innings to get the, the the thing over with and on 3-0 he lobs one that um, Mercedes was able to hit over the wall for a home run. And his manager, who was a controversial um, hire to begin with, 
Um, Tony Russo, like he's the first manager, I think, to be in the Hall of Fame. Probably the second, because I think Connie Mack was in the first like Hall of Fame class. And he ended up like managing for another like 20 years after that. But Tony Russo is probably the first one in modern history to be in the Hall of Fame and then come out to I mean he didn't come out of the Hall of Fame, but to to come and manage a team after being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And the direction that the game is going, obviously the old way of doing things, um, and all of these traditions and stuff like that is not making the game any more popular. Like we want to see guys, you know, doing bat flips. We want to see guys striking out dudes and staring them down or doing fist pumps or celebrating and stuff like that. Um, that's why a lot of these kids are leaning towards, you know, other sports, basketball and football, because those sports celebrate your individuality and celebrates, um, you know, taking pride in the things that you're doing and all of the stuff. Like, and the whole thing about like the Yerman Mercedes thing was why is it Yerman Mercedes and the White Sox, um, job to make sure that the, Minnesota, the Minnesota Twins win with dignity or lose with dignity. Um, first of all, you have a positional player in there. It's one thing if it was an actual pitcher. Like, there's actual pitchers that throw the ball over the plate that hit guys or lose control of the ball and stuff like that. So there's a lot more opportunity for a guy to get hit with a position player in there probably. And you're still in the game, and your man Mercedes is not, like, an established player. He's actually, like, the breakout player of the 2021 season. And I just remember, like, David Ortiz, one of those years, like, he was playing. He ended up with, like, 99 RBIs. And he was just talking about how there's a huge difference between ending up with 99 RBIs and ended up with, like, 100 RBIs. And he was really disappointed with the fact that he ended up with 99. So that's the first one of the first things I thought of when uh, Mercedes hit that ball. I'm just like, you know, what if at the end of the season he's he's currently the leader in batting average for the American League. So I'm like, what if the end of the season he ends up losing the battle title, the batting title, um, based off of like percentage points because in that I bat, you know, he took or he ended up like striking out or popping out after taking the pitch that he hit the home run on. And then Tony Russo was like defending um, him getting hit by the opposing by, by the twins the next day. So that was the story. Well, Tony Russo last week too, uh, like you mentioned how he came, like he retired already and he was in the hall of fame. So he's, he's been around since the 80s. You know, we all know him from the athletics and everything. Uh, the news last week that I saw of him was like, um, oh, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know the rules. Like, he didn't know the rules of like the new uh, extra innings. You know, he was like, oh, okay. So right away, he's his mind is already in the old school, mm-hmm. unwritten rules, as you would call them. Uh, but yeah, little Russo's that type of guy. Yeah, you know? it was just like interesting. Um, I was like probably the only interesting story. I was like, yeah, like uh, you know, that's what we could talk about in sports. Because the Knicks aren't playing until tomorrow night. Um, 
you catch the part in the game today where like Spike Lee was at the Yankees game and Michael Kay was like, oh, you know, he's going to be at the, he's probably going to be at the Knicks game tomorrow night. And then he kind of like caught himself and he was like, who knows, maybe he might be at the Nets game because, you know, yes, he has the, you know, total yeah. company, company line. The propaganda. Yeah. The yeah. Nets. And I'm like, I was listening to that shit. I, you, you know, everybody knows that, you know, I don't really care for Spike Lee as a person. I do appreciate him as an auteur and a director and a filmmaker. But I was like, man, imagine if he actually does go to the Brooklyn Nets game tonight and then goes to the next game tomorrow night and then something bad happens at the next game. I'll be like, that's on Spike Lee. Well, apparently the Nets. Bad juju. Apparently the Nets. I, I didn't know this. Like their 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 celebrity mascot is Ethan Hawke. Uh, I'm Team Uma. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the reason why he's like a Nets fan now is because James Dolan like wasn't comping them tickets anymore. So he's like, I'm not going for. Free. Oh, I gotta pay now. Oh wow! How that's... dare you? James Dolan is like he has to take care of Spike. He has to get the red carpet to Spike. You know that's that's his job now. Um, but I watched the playing games. I was up late working on the show, working on videos. And, um, of course, you had to watch Lakers, Golden State. Um, and LeBron with his acting. Oh, my God. Like, it was like a – I had a mute. of the hard, hardwood. I mean, no, not even that. But, like, I know he got hit in the face with the elbow. It was just, like, so dramatic. And, like – like, I was like, I wish I wish, I wish Draymond would have hit him harder. I mean, like, they had to put the, the CGI balls on him for, like, in the video right, game so he, you would have that moment. That, that right. You had to capture that over-the-top moment. If he does not come out looking like Kurt Russell as Snake Plitzkin and escaped him from New York in the next game, like, like I'm going to be peeved. Matter of fact, didn't you hear, did you hear today that, like, he, um, he violated the COVID, like, protocols, but they're not going to punish him? So then all of these people, like, all of these guys are, like, trying to defend him. Like, oh, like, you're just mad. You wanted him suspended. But my thing is just, like, he's been very anti-vax or very publicly hesitant about getting the vaccination or revealing whether or not he was vaccinated. And he's out here violating, you know, protocols that you probably would, you know, ignore if he'd been vaccinated. Because the CDC already put all kind of different, they they they're allowing you to do a lot more if you're va- vaccinated. Um, but it's just interesting to me because Lou Lou Williams of the Hawks now, mm. back when he was with the Clippers, he ordered like Uber Eats in his hotel from like Magic City City the strip club, which apparently has like really good wings. I, I've never been, so I don't know. Um, he had to take, he had to, like, they they had to quarantine him because he ordered Uber Eats. And he had contact with the Uber Eats person. Okay. I mean, um, watching that game, just just in general, I didn't have, I wasn't rooting for either of them. I don't like the Lakers. I don't like LeBron. I really don't like Golden State. I, I'm, not, I'm anti, I don't like Golden State. Uh, it's just the, the, like, hey, we made a joke about it. Uh, the crowd was out of it. I mean, they shouldn't have been in the opportunity to go to overtime or to win. Like yeah. they got, they got a call. No, they got a call. That's one of the fatigue. <laughs> they, they should have, it could have been challenged and it would have been overturned and then they wouldn't have had the opportunity to tie it up. I think like those, yeah, you see, and that's, that's the thing about us Knicks fans. It's like, I w- like if all, if the Knicks in the last decade had went to five straight finals and won three, 
like even afterwards they were kind of like a struggling meddling team because like our other like star player was injured and stuff like that um like I don't think Knicks fans would be leaving games. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the situation, the traffic in San Francisco yeah. is, or their uh, mass transit situation. Because I mean, it's easy for us to say because it's like, all right, if you go to the Knicks game, you can just hop on the train. When you're done, you're not beating traffic. Yeah, but um, it's just like over the top. I, I don't know. I, I like the Warriors in like the 2000s when they were like shitty. And it's weird that they're wearing that uniform now again. Like, it's like, I'm getting the flashbacks it's bad luck. of... It's bad yeah. juju because you gentrified yourself. <laughs> you and went to, uh, you, left, you left Oakland, you know, yeah. Oakland for San Francisco. And now you want to be all Oakland. When you were in Oakland, you didn't have jerseys that said Oakland, it said Golden State. Yeah, I know. That's but now you're in San Francisco. You're like, nah, man, we're still repping Oakland. Da, da, da. We did all our stuff in Oakland. And it's kind of crazy because... Technically speaking, since they've moved, because the playing games don't count as playoffs. Oh, right. That's another thing I wrote down, yeah. Since they've moved into the the Chase Center, they're not, they have not hosted a playoff game outside of Oracle. Mm. Um, But yeah, with the playing's not counting, that's something that popped up too, where, uh, what about like fouls, like flagrant fouls? Does that count? Like, can you just go only for the, the playing? So it would only be like the one game or the two game. Hmm. Interesting. Like if payback. you went on to the second game, like it would count in the second game. But um, but yeah, own isolated thing. Speaking of isolated, did you notice uh, Rachel Nichols was like in a broom closet? <laughs> did you know? I saw like a piece of her. Uh, I looked away like when she was interviewing um whoever the hell she was interviewing i don't know but back yeah, to but, the, but back to the yankees with the, right. the the thing um yeah so i was like it ain't really like much with sports and then cory kluber like there was no hitter and between the like i was kind of like sitting like back and forth in my head i was like oh man like i don't want to like record it w- it would be cool to like show my live reaction but I need the whole like production setup, mm. so I had to like rush, and it might have been like my my record time for like setting up. Um, when I recorded the last three hours, like those those were actually live. Like I didn't fast forward and rewind. Like that was my live reaction because every the second the not the second the third baseball game i've ever went to actually today or tomorrow might be the anniversary because we went as a family because the yankees were out of town um we went to shea stadium um 2004 to see the mets play the colorado rockies Tom Glavin was pitching and he went like seven perfect innings and ended up having like a complete game, one hitter. So ever since then, I've always been trying to watch like a no hitter or perfect game live that I never had. And every Yankee game, like I've seen a ton of games where they've gotten deep into the game and lost a no hitter or a perfect game. A lot of, a couple of times with Phil Hughes actually. Musina was the most famous one. That was two outs. Well, I, yeah, I wasn't really, I wasn't watching the Yankees back then. Oh, so, okay. but mm. I've, I've seen it. I'm just talking about like when I've been watching it. Mm. Okay. So I know, 
like Michael K always has this thing like he doesn't like he doesn't care if he mentions the no hitter and it's like mm. a superstitious thing. So it was like that was one of the things I was like going through my mind. I was like when it happened, I was like, oh man, like Michael I know Michael K feels like validated now that like he was talking about no hitter from like the sixth inning and he didn't jinx it. So Yeah, he always does that. He'd be like, Can I say it? We got a no hitter going on. Like he'll like he'll bring it up like real early. I know Mike. Yeah. I like that's like his style. Yeah. And um, it's crazy because the next day, no, actually not the next day, two days after that, last night, Friday, playing the White Sox with Tony Larusa. Mm-hmm. They actually had another rare occurrence where you saw a triple play. Like mm-hmm. we talked about it in the in the odd couple. That was the part in the movie that we talked about where um Felix made Oscar miss um a triple play at Shea Stadium. And it's it's extremely rare. And I just remember the fact that like I think the Yankees hadn't had one since 1982, and then they had one in like 2010, and they had like five of them like afterwards, including last night. Uh, the anniversary of the one uh, with A-Rod was recently too. My brother sent me it. So it's funny because like Michael K goes over the top. He's like, it's a triple play. You know that? And like A-Rod's like all excited. And right away, like uh, Joe Torre's like this. Oh, okay. And they all laugh about it. But my bit in my head was like, for some reason, someone else like gets hyped up about it. And it keeps going back and forth. We're like, it is a triple play. Like, and more people come out of the dugout. And it keeps going on over and over again. And then Joe Torre keeps coming back. Nope, nope, it's not. Okay, and everyone settles down. And then it happens again because there's like the ovation. Just uh, yeah. the I guess I was it's, forward. It's yeah. a it's a rare play because it's like you kind of go from like disaster to um ecstasy mm-hmm. and like the matter of and like the matter of moments because. You have to have two runners on with no outs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the ball has to be put in play. And once the ball is put in play, like anything could happen. Uh, but I didn't realize it was like when I saw like, because first of all, Urshela caught the ball and the way he caught it, it was meant to be the type of catch where you throw the second and then second baseman throws the first for the double play. And you would have had, um, two outs and a run on third, but he caught it, took two steps, topped the base, threw it to um, Gleyber Torres, Gleyber Torres threw it, throws it to Luke Voigt, and, like, you're watching, it's like, wow, it's a, it's a triple play. It was actually, like, the first time, like, Chapman's been in, like, trouble this whole year. So, you know, everybody, I remember on Twitter, like, everybody was like, oh, like, Chapman's fine. Oh, okay, it's over. Like Chapman's finally mortal again. But it, like, it's crazy. He he got three outs without getting a strikeout, which is like fascinating in of itself. And then Glaber ended up it three hits, uh, Judge Urshela, and then Torres, three straight singles, and then we won the game walk off fashion. So that's a weekend sports. Tomorrow night we're gonna have um. We're going to have the Knicks and Hawks game one. I'm excited. It's the first time. The Garden's going to have its biggest crowd since last March. Um, and they've been loud as hell with, like, 10% capacity. So I can't even imagine how loud. 
and excited the crowd's going to be tomorrow night. So hopefully we get out to a good start, good run, and just scare the shit out of the Hawks. Um, and hopefully I get, you know, my, my birthday morning is not, um, you know, a damper is not put fouled. On. It's yeah. not fouled by the Hawks. And then hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see some less uh, bias, anti-Knicks uh, stuff going on next week. We got to show and prove because all, all week long, we can't even enjoy a, we can't even enjoy one game in the playoffs without us uh, being, uh, you know, given the whole treatment where we're like spoiled fans, you know, they keep hmm. this propaganda, anti-Nick propaganda. That's all I'm saying. Oh, yeah, one isn't there. All right. So uh, if you guys have been checking out our show for a while, uh, about six months ago, Suge started watching for the first time uh, the series Bachelor. And uh, Suge, let us know, why did you start watching uh, Bachelor uh, earlier this year? The story of having black people on it. Okay, there you go. So uh, recently... One of such black people uh, was 2017, uh, The Bachelorette, which is like the companion show to The Bachelor. Makes sense. Uh, they had Rachel Lindsay, a uh, woman of color, as the person that everyone was vying for, uh, vying for her love. So mm-hmm. this week, she uh, was speaking about the franchise, and she had some stuff to say about it. And uh, Shug noticed that he, gave, he, he brought it to my attention. Um, basically, uh, we can get into everything she said, but Shook, why, uh, when you, why are we talking about this now? Like, why is it important to you and me? I felt like I had to like apologize because I figured like I've been hard on her as well as, um, Tasia Adams, who was right. the bachelorette, actually was like the sec the bachelorette of like the second half because the original, bachelorette like claire crowley i believe her name was like she decided who she wanted like midway through the season and they needed somebody to choose between like the remaining like eight or eight to ten people eight to ten guys and i was critical of it because i know like before matt season Everybody was being super duper, like, prejudiced or, you know, like the better word, and thinking that, like, Matt was going to pick a white woman, which he ended up doing. Actually, probably picked the worst white woman because just found out she had a little bit of a racially insensitive checkered history. But I was critical when we did our... um look through or you know our discussion on the history of the bachelor with race and i was like you know it's kind of messed up that the two black bachelorettes like they picked white guys i i thought it was kind of weird like every time and then you kind of like couple in matt picking a white woman it was like it's kind of crazy every time you have a black lead on this show they still ended up picking white so it kind of got me kind of suspect about the individuals themselves, you know, Rachel, Tasia, and Matt. But then it came out this week that Rachel, she actually found out, I guess, from a few of the African-American um, suitors on her show that 
they were chosen. I don't know if they they them they themselves realized they were chosen for this reason, but seemingly the casting directors or whoever's in charge of casting the contestants on The Bachelor, they chose all black men who had never dated an African aware an Af- who had never dated an African American woman before. And that got me to thinking, I was like, well, you know, they probably, the fact that they chose men that never dated African-American women before, these are guys who probably were already, like, averse to dating a Black woman to begin with. So they probably had nothing in common with racial or nothing or they didn't seem interested in Rachel. So they were easily, um, it's like that. It's like, guess who? Remember that game? Guess who? Mm, yeah. yeah. Flip down people. So it, in my thinking, after reading what Rachel said, I was like, you know, that's like me being on a season of the bachelor and it's 30 women and like 17 of them are white, nine of them are black. And then like four of them aren't um black or white and the nine black women that they chose were like Zoe Zaldana and like Candace Owens or Doja Cat like these black women who already don't even like black guys so when I'm on the show I'm already like all right I know like I'm not I have no future with these women so I'm sending them home so what's left all really like non-black women. So I'm, I, the, the long and short of it is if you skipped ahead, I have to apologize for them because I put the blame on them and I just felt like they were perpetuating this stereotype that um, essentially black men aren't um, attractive or aren't eligible suitors viable yeah yeah viable suitors for someone to to marry or somebody to spend the rest of their life with when in reality it's the the bachelor product the 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 production the the producers the casting directors and stuff like that because as we've seen with matt because i also said i thought matt was kind of like corny i think he was uh, you know, I, I said it, I tried to uh, put kid gloves on it, I tried to sugarcoat it, but I, I feel like he wasn't, like, black enough. Personally, I thought he he was, you know, a cornball brother, as um Rob Parker says about <laughs> Robert Griffin III. I, I felt like he was a cornball brother. Yeah, so I'm I, I'm just, like, I feel like the same way people felt like he was perpetuating that stereotype that black women weren't um attractive or viable suitors uh, i feel like i felt like rachel and tasia were doing that but at the same time now hearing this from rachel it's like in reality what i suspected is what i know now which is that the bachelor franchise and the people the showrunners and stuff like that they've been apathetic and poor at dealing with people of color and casting people of color. And I think part of that has to be the fact of something I brought up when we were doing the Bachelor updates, which was that 
I think they picked like the safest black people possible or the most the black people who would be most palatable to white people. Yeah, so uh, Rachel even says in her own words that uh, as a black woman, you know, I checked all the boxes, you know, but she, she'll play the game in referring to the behind the scenes, like the, the franchise and the production behind it. Um, I, th- I, came, I, I come from, I came from a background in casting and everything. And you, yeah, I, I agree. Like they probably could, you could describe it as plain chicken. Like, all right, he's not, they're not going to pick this person. So we'll still have it out there for the audience to, for the first few weeks. So we have, uh, we won't get in trouble or like, Hey, look, we're showing we're, we're diverse here. Uh, but the end result was always going to be something that they had predetermined, which a lot of things in production is like, they set things up where, uh, they had the foresight that they think this is what's going to happen probably most likely because, um, reality TV docuseries, it's, they play on uh, straight up. This is I, I was involved in it. They they play on um, prejudices, you know, like and uh, uh, stereotypes. So like if you show some person on a show, like immediately the audience can pick it up and go, oh, this is who the this is who they are. It's very one dimensional. Like uh, just I, I need to understand these people in one soundbite. So it's, it's if you're looking for love like that, it's very hard to find something someone with depth right away. Uh, but they need to be in control of it. So they set these uh, things where like, all right, this person has never dated someone of their, uh, they never dated a black woman. All right, let's put them on there. Cause most likely uh, they're not going to, they're not going to vibe together. And there's a part where she said that when she rewatched her season, um, Rachel said she saw herself crying and like having like a, a moment, like a freak out moment, but it was from, they used it. Uh, they used the, a moment where she was freaking out about like, oh, like the people that they chose as a casting, but they used that one clip, the video of it for something else, mm-hmm. which is, it's not ill intent. Like they weren't doing this maliciously. Like this is what they do in editing. They take one scene, one shot, and they manipulate it in different ways. That's just how TV is. But in this instance, uh, it shows her, uh, if they showed her actually freaking out about like, hey, this person never dated a black person before. Uh, you know, how, how, you know, like that's what the thing was that's what the moment was mm-hmm. and you watching it you you didn't realize that you didn't know this so now she said basically to sum it up uh you know i did play the game i know they said that i would i did the contract is up so now i'm speaking out about the franchise she also was on a podcast that was kind of like a, a wrap-up type show or something like that um but now she's like you know rachel Lindsay. of course she's in her own right she's a successful attorney and everything she's a media personality and now she's being more outright saying I was part of like this experiment to show people of color on this uh, majority, you know, like this um, traditionally just white cast for the, like, the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now she's trying to be like, okay, that wasn't, that wasn't good. That wasn't where we needed to do this. We needed to do it also behind the cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to diversify, not just the people on screen as people behind the screen, because like they said, they, the people casting didn't realize that someone, if like, if you put me on a show, uh, like I, I never dated an Asian woman before and the person, the bachelorette is an Asian woman. And it's my first time having some type of intimate love type thing with that. Uh, it's playing out on TV. It's probably not going to work out. You know, it's not, that's not my personality. I'm, you know, you're setting me up to fail right away. So, yeah. I mean, like, cause the way I see it, I'm like, if you're, in that situation, like that situation there where they, she's crying because 
you know, what she said was because she found out that they chose these guys that didn't date, you know, these black guys that don't date black girls. I'm like, it's a broad statement and Lord only knows what is the actual, because I don't think like these guys are like, you know what, like I don't date black women, but I'm here. I think it's it's a lot of like subtle things, um, quasi like microaggression type of things. Where it's like, you know, like, I, I don't mess with black girls because you guys have attitudes or shit like that and stuff like that probably compounded with things Rachel Lindsay has heard outside of the show before the show from many a black dude or many a guy. That was the thing that brought her to tears and the fact that they use it for something else is like just nefarious in of itself. But the thing I thought of too, I was like, imagine I was on The Bachelor or some kind of like dating show like The Bachelor. And I related to it. I'm like, imagine I was really attracted to the black women or to like certain black women on the show. And then I sat down and talked to them. And these black women only dated like white guys. And like, oh, like, what kind of stuff are you into? Well, you know. I like listening to music. My favorite kind of music is like hip hop and R&B and like this chick being like, oh, hip hop and R&B. That's like ghetto. Um, and I'll be like, uh, okay. Uh, oh, what are your favorite movies? Well, you know, I like Pulp Fiction, but you know, my favorite comedy is like Friday. Like Friday, like, uh, like, that's like, thuggish of you or some shit like that and like off the rip you're like all right i know i'm not gonna have a connection with this person whereas like with like the white contestants they'll probably be like well you know like i'm gonna give it a shot and oh like you like friday i mean and it's funny because you actually saw those type of like conversations with matt and rachel where she was like oh well i don't know about your experiences but i want to learn about them and da 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 because you know that's usually what like white girls do like oh I want to be your friend because <laughs> I don't know nothing about this shit. Mm. Uh, and also the sample size is so small. Like let's say the like the people the two bachelorettes and one bachelor. Uh, so again, it's out of if you, if you do the math, you know, it's like a very small sample size. Uh, so who knows if things would be different? But now we're just focusing on these ones, but. Uh, yeah, so if this was like this show is based on like dating like um, blind dates is pretty much like dating services. This is like the reality version of dating services that were very popular. They they grew into dating apps, but you would have like a professional uh, in charge of like okay, so I like I like certain things. I like NASCAR and fishing, and I like um, and I like uh, heavy metal. All right, so. One person who writes on their thing like, oh, uh, I, I've never listened to heavy metal music before, and I don't think I really like it. Why would you even bother like, putting that person in the uh, selects, like that little pile? Like it's right there. It's just not a red herring, but it's also like it's a pitfall for TV, for, for the sake of TV. Like you're going to clash. This, these two people are going to clash, and they're not going to work out, but let's just put them out there for exciting TV. Um, that's one thing you could say. Or you could say like they want to perpetuate a certain belief like there's different things with the production side are they doing this just for exciting tv or is this detrimental to 
advancing society and how we see these people who because like di- uh, you know diversity yeah, on tv well, is important you know like she said i think it, the, the whole shit gotta get overhauled because you know case in point this is something we spent a lot of time on in our episode of um you know talking about the bachelor and race where you know their first like and this was like 10 seasons into the bachelor the first non-white American bachelor was like Juan Pablo, whatever his name is. And he was like a white Venezuelan dude. And, you know, it was like, oh, we're diverse now. And I'm like, bro, like if you took a picture of me and you took a picture of Juan Pablo, whatever his name is, and gave them to like a bank teller or whatever, or like a loan, the person who approves loans in a bank and say, who are you giving a loan to? You have to give a loan to one of these people without knowing their financial history. Odds are they're going to pick Juan Pablo because he looks like a white guy. Hmm. That's an interesting show. Mm-hmm. They should do that. Um... But the, the, the other thing, the other thing about that thing is that her coming out and saying that and the fact that her she picked like a white guy and like they're together still so you know good for them and mm-hmm. then Tasia picked a white guy you know good for them and then Matt apparently he's back with racial like I yeah. say they're pursuing um, a relationship um, yeah, listen better him than me it wouldn't be me because uh, just real quickly like when I saw the thing with her and these pictures and the stuff like that, and then she was only confronted with it when it came to light, I thought of like how many biracial people I've met or people who have like families with whites and blacks and hearing how like, you know, you're the mixed kid, but they treat you a lot different than your white cousins or out outright like the white part of your family don't want to have like a relationship with you and um like like the 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 black relative the white relative and a black and her black significant other and stuff like that and I was just like I couldn't put my children through that and I feel like we're racial she was raised that way Cause that's the only shit you could explain it. I'm like her family and her upbringing. That's the reason why in 2018, she doesn't understand how offensive all of this shit is because virtually like 55% of white people are realizing that a lot of shit, like she, she got, you know, um, doxed about is offensive shit but she's in that 45% and it has to be the upbringing. So that's why me personally, I wouldn't have pursued a relationship after finding a shit out about. So better Matt than me. I hope they seek happiness and I hope like she's a better person for his sake. But, you know, he chose her. Tasia chose a white person. Rachel chose a white person. Katie's white. So I don't know who she's going to choose. But the next season, the following season after this for the Bachelorette in the fall is going to be Michelle, who is she has a black father and a white mother. And it's sad because I'm like, uh, I'm I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm hoping her as a black woman, she chooses a black guy. 
And I'm hoping if they choose another black bachelor that that person chooses a woman of color. Cause I think it should be shown that like we are suitable, suitable people to pursue, you know, a life of happiness with or a life of marriage and have relationships with. Where I think like if every season you have like a black person, they still end up choosing a white person. I feel like it's perpetuating a stereotype where if you had your choice, you're not gonna choose someone of color. So I, I that's what I hope for in the future. And it's sad that we're in the state, but the bachelor has had a very bad history. Who knows, maybe if they blow the whole shit up and have a whole new set of producers and casting directors, a diverse group of producers and casting directors, maybe the thing will change. And it will actually, if somebody actually chose a white person, it's like they chose that person out of love and not because the producers and the casting directors stacked it, stacked the deck in that way, you know? I don't know. It's like reality TV is reality TV. So they're going to have to set it up in a way where, okay, this is what we're kind of want to get. So if that's going to be the outcome, then they're still going to have to stack up the casting with certain personalities and stuff. So it's still the same thing. It's just different people are going to be in charge of the production, except for the people they've had now. No, that's, uh, that's just TV. I mean, like you have like MTVs or you're the one where they actually, actually get like dating, dating experts and like relationship experts. And it ain't always like, you know, it'll be like a white guy and a white girl. It'll be like a black guy and a black girl. It'll be like a black guy and a Spanish girl. And it's just based off of your whatever you said you, you're interested mm. in and what they say they're interested in. So it can be done in a way that I don't have to be slanted for certain people to end up with certain people. Yeah. It's a huge franchise, again, and it's like, you know, ABC, a.k.a. Disney. So there's so much money involved in this. So we'll see because the huge property, huge, huge uh, franchise. So um, I'm going to keep going with Bachelor and figure it out because it's it's a flagship show. So if, if they're going to make a drastic change, if it's if drastic, drastic, you know, I don't see it happening overnight again. Like they've been doing this for 20 years and this is the biggest progress they've made so far. So I don't know how, how quickly you're going to start seeing um, – the TV people represented that you want to see because I still see it taking longer. They got you as a fan now, right? Not really. No, I don't know. Hey. I don't see what they do. I have to see what they do with, with the Bachelor. Yeah, there you go. Because if it's um, another white guy or it's like an Asian dude or something, I mean, it would be cool if it's an Asian dude because they don't get represented enough. So if they do. Yeah, like of course they could make a show that's like three three different versions of the Bachelor, but then it's still but not the Bachelor. Like, I, it's I not think, the Bachelor, you know. Like either way, like you pick like a person of color, and like I could see them picking like an Asian dude, and still ending up with like a white girl. I could see them picking like an Asian girl, and her still ending up with like a white dude. But so people listening who don't get the big, who don't understand what the big deal is, uh, you can uh, co- kind of it's comparable to Miss uh, Miss America or, or like Miss Universe. That that title might seem oh like oh silly you know, but it's important. It's a it's a it's no, a th- it's an no, important thing you know. You know? stories like you watch this show for ten like this is the whole encapsulates the whole show. It's a show you watch for like ten weeks, and at the end of it, 
like you start off with 30 people and one. But at the very, 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 very end of it, you still end up with at least one white person. And that's the issue. And the thing that Rachel Lindsay highlighted was that they've structured it in that way. They've casted it in that way. I don't think like regular people understand how casting works. And I think like it's just like people apply to be on a show and they just take everybody. It's like they apply to a show, they send in these audition tapes, they do all this background stuff and blah, 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 blah. And if you fit the personality that will add in intrigue, but at the same time gets the show to the end point that they want it to end at, they're going to pick that person instead of the right person. That's the long and short of it. It's not an experiment. It's a show. You know, if it was an experiment, it would have been like, let's see if this actually does happen. But it's they have their hands all over it. Oh, yeah, let's put that person on. They'll, that, they'll stir the shit, you know. That's reality TV, and we can move on from that. Something that's real, uh, a documentary series, uh, Sons of Sam. Another thing uh, similar to reality TV, I'm going to bring in, I'm going to segue, segue with this. I am sick to, de sick to death of ma murder and mayhem, serial killers. I'm like, I OD'd on it. Um, I want something more positive, and this is like, whatever, whatever. So I heard about this Son of Sam documentary, and I was like, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to watch it. But then I learned that it's kind of a twist on it. So I was like, all right, fine. You know, what, what new can you tell me about Son of Sam Berkowitz? Um, so I watched it and I realized it was actually more so uh, about someone investigating the string of seemingly random acts of violence. Uh, Shug, I had you watch this. Uh, what is your, we, the first episode uh, kicks off. Uh, going into this, you had a good, uh, good, um, you knew you knew about Son of Sam going into this, right? Yeah, I'm a New York native, so I mean, not a New York native, but a New York cur. Spent most of my life in New York, so I'm aware of Son of Sam. Lived in the areas where in which he terrorized in the '90s. I mean, in the '70s, he terrorized in the '70s. Um. So when I was like, when, when Mike told me to watch this, he said, it was, I was, you know, it's a mini series. So I assumed it was kind of like, um, a lot of other stuff where I've watched about murderers, like, you know, Ted Bundy and, you know, different people where they kind of like focus on the crimes and then, you know, talk about the victims and stuff like that. So the first episode was like that. So when it kind of was like airtight, like, all right, this is Sam Sam. Here's the eight different attacks. Um, here's how they found him. This is when they captured, captured him, blah, blah, blah. Like seeing that in the first episode, I was like, all right, so what are you going to do for the next couple? And the first half of the second episode, I was intrigued by because this was like right after they found him and I, it was like the aftermath and then the second half of that episode and then the entirety of the third episode they kind of lost me because they started talking about like cults and devil worshiping and this and that and then by the fourth episode it came became apparent that 
the point that they were trying to make was that, or the person that was investigating um, this whole crime from the jump was that it might have been part of a bigger and broader network than what we were initially told. And if we know the NYPD, as a matter of fact, one of the detectives who was like the most vocal against um, this person investigating was actually a common character with another major crime in New York City where in fact they got the wrong people and let the actual assailant go free and actually in that in that instance go on to actually commit another of the crimes which was Joe Coffey who was involved in the Central Park 5 or the Central Park rape case where essentially they picked up five kids who happened to be in a park that night because a whole bunch of kids were in the park causing a ruckus and doing a whole bunch of nonsense. They picked up, you know, you know how it happens, like a whole bunch of kids in the park and then the cops pop up and then everybody breaks, everybody breaks out and they go there, they try to get away and five of them, they caught. It just so happened that that same night they were doing all that, a woman was bludgeoned in the head and raped while jogging. And they tried to pin it on the five kids that they caught. Come to find out years later, no DNA evidence matched them. Um, one of the people who actually wasn't even in the park, um, one of the five, he was in jail with the actual rapist. And that rapist confessed to the chaplain that he had actually done the crime. Uh, DNA evidence matched him to that crime. And after they, the, the NYPD caught these five kids and put pinned the rape on those five kids, like two, two to six months, I can't remember, it was two months or six months afterwards, a woman, a pregnant woman was raped and murdered um, not too far from Central Park in the upper east or west side by um, the actual assailant. And the thing about the NYPD is instead of catching like the actual person that did it, you know, it's a lot easier to say like they solved it because they got these kids. The media is going to do the work for them. We say these are the kids, these are the one, these are the rapists. The media is going to say they're the rapists, and we don't have to do anything anymore. As far as the media goes, we did our job, and that was the one link I saw in the Son of Sam case. Um, yeah. after watching this documentary, Joe Coffey. That's, that's why I wanted to watch it. Uh, that's why I wanted to talk about it because it's a uh, deeper, it's layered. All right, so just more of the backstory, of course. Uh, this is the official report is that it's uh, uh, from 1976 summer till 1977 August. Uh, it was six people killed, seven people wounded, all by a 44 caliber revolver. Uh, and the official, the, if officially it's done by uh, David Berkowitz. Uh, so that's, and, and he pled guilty. 
So that's it. So the New York City was uh, in hysterics over these seemingly isolated uh, random attacks, uh, even though it's on, in the backdrop of city, the city being near bankruptcy, chaos. They show a little montage in the beginning of these people just go like the one guy just talking to himself saying, oh, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. You know, things like that. They're showing fear city is what the uh, cops started calling uh, calling it. They were they're uh, laying people, laying police officers off and fire uh, firefighters off, not not graduating people or not, uh, you know, like the, the academies weren't taking new people. So basically everyone was like, oh, you can't leave your house at night. You know, it's, it's scary. You know, it's, it's fear city, everyone. And, and and all the these reason, things happen. And yeah. And that's the reason why I think they honed in on um, David Berkowitz. And I think we see it a lot in police cases, especially in New York City, but also all around the, the, the world. I mean, no, well, all around the, the United States, you know, the world. Point, well, probably the world too. Oh, but I'm gonna get I, into it. I, I'm I, I don't case, know yeah. about the. I don't know about other places, but you know, that's one of the reasons I've said, like, I don't think I'm not saying OJ didn't do it, but I'm not. I don't think that he did. Whenever people. Like hear me talk about the OJ trial. That's one of them things. You know how with the, with the, the gentleman in this story, where it's like, yo, you get him in a bar. He like to drink. You know, yeah, I like the, you know, I like I like a little taste. <laughs> if you got me in a bar and you start talking to me about like the OJ case, like I like I'd say, you know, I'm not saying that he didn't do it, but I'm not sure that he did do it because I always said I'm like they honed in on like. This one guy, there was never no possibilities of anybody else doing a crime. So that makes me skeptical of him, especially when the evidence itself wasn't like strong. So in this David Berkowitz case, that was the one thing I was thinking, you know, Mike, if we were transported back in our time and these eight attacks happened, right? What would make you sleep better at night? The police coming out and saying they caught one guy that committed all eight attacks. Or they caught one guy and he confessed to the two attacks. But he doesn't know. He, he hasn't confessed or we can't pin him to the other six crimes. Which one would help you sleep easier? Of course, yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, knowing that uh, he, the first one, and if you say, oh, the, the real killer is still out there, to harken back to OJ, everyone will still be nervous about it. And uh, going back to 1976, 77, it was, the election was going on with the mayor, uh, bankruptcy and everything. Uh, so that's why, let me get into the, I still haven't finished establishing it. So the official story, pled guilty, uh, the whole story with the cops and the media, uh, they had a relationship, a back and forth with said killer, killers. Um, so they were, the media and the police were made to look like fools. That's not, that's not good to have, especially in a time where things are going crazy in the city and uh, financially and just uh, morale wise. So there's that crazy shot Again, another reason why I like watching this is like the, the accents, the dying accents of New York, where 
we we caught him. We got the guy. We got him. And then the, the one guy in the media is like, well, what about the uh, evidence that proves that maybe this is a – shut the fuck up, all right? Get the fuck out of here. You wanna sleep? I'm going to take my gun and stick it up so far up your fucking ass. Like that was like, a crazy shot they have. And basically they wanted to put a pin in it. All right, they're just – it's over. Case closed. We got the guy. Um, so that leads to the point of this is that possibilities of multiple killers or, or it actually is organized – uh, acts of random violence are organized. There is a there is a method to this. It's not just you know, which is scary. All right. So basically, uh, it has a lot to do with satanic, uh, satanic uh, motives. Um, so I know you weren't into that, but I just like that they they had a, a thing where it's it it leaves doubt to that it was just Berkowitz. Um, and the way they crafted this first episode, it reminded me of how they do JFK conspiracy theories with Jim Garrison. They try to, like, they, they basically created uh, Maury Terry. Maury Terry, uh, he's the guy, the guy who wrote the book about the possibilities of alternate theories of uh, who were. Evil. Oh, yeah, the ultimate evil came out in the 80s and he's he was all over the news. We're getting, we can get into that after too. But my point is that, and you brought up, I had it written down here to Central Park. Uh, situation too because uh a panic was created you know like fear city like there's a there's a there's this thing where um they want people to be, have fear but then they want to coddle them too and also just make them feel safe and i by having okay we caught these kids now now you can go back to the park okay so this kind of came out of a satanic uh craze like, like a uh a satanic panic is what they were calling it. Um, so you had like the Church of uh, Church of Satan. Uh, you know, you had the um, the ones from this, the process and everything. But with me saying, um, I think that he, he admitted to being involved, but like that's all he'll say. He like all of them. He says he didn't do. Berkowitz said he didn't do all of them, but the case is already closed. Uh, you know, so it's like. That's the only reason why I brought it up too, because uh, you, you so you touched on it with like not trusting the media and not trusting the the, the police, because uh, there was another situation in another documentary about England, same exact time. Uh, these Berkowitz, the son of Sam, uh, uh, crimes were like in like the suburbs of Manhattan, you know, like in like the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens. So there was this one in in the seventies in uh, uh, in Lo the London like area. Very similar to New York, where it's like, you know, like working class, middle class people. Uh, some of these women started getting killed. At first, they were like prostitutes, and it, it, they were calling it the Ripper. He was referring to himself as like the new Jack the Ripper. So he, there was a whole, he, the media was getting taunted, the police were getting taunted. And much like the scene in um, Son of Sam, where the cops are like, we caught the guy, it's over, get the fuck out, the whole thing. They had the English version of it, and it was them with like tea, and they had their legs crossed. We're like, "Well, we caught the gentleman. He's gone. He's, we caught them." And everyone's like applauding and stuff. And like, there's no possible way for the person that got caught to have done it. They just wanted to calm the news and calm um, the public because these crazy random acts were happening for almost a decade. And the guy who was supposed to be Jack the Ripper was taunting everyone. At one point, they found a body, the first body. And it had a newspaper from like let's say like May 10th, but the you know the body was had been dead since like April 10th, 
So basically the person that killed it came back, saw that no one found it yet. And we're taunting them by showing like the newspaper and stuff. So it was like, really sick stuff. And um, this is what I'm going to ask you next question. But they were saying that women couldn't leave. There was a curfew for women. You had to be accompanied by men. So this whole uh, feminist movement started where they were saying, oh, just because women are getting killed, you know, that doesn't mean we can't leave the house now. But now you're saying you can leave the house. I mean, you say you, you can't leave the house now. That's not fair. And people are like, well, you know, this, this guy, this one man's killing all these women. You can't go out. So basically, they were saying, yeah, women are getting killed, but uh, you can't just take away our rights. Now I'm thinking about the Sons of Sam where these, these isolated uh, attacks were happening, but it was shutting down like the whole city. And there's all these other stuff going on. Like it was like a distraction at the same time where they wanted it to go away, but also it covered up for all the other crazy shit that was going on. And uh, I just see the parallels between these two documentaries and these two incidents, these two killing sprees in uh, the 70s and these two different areas that uh, they both ended with the cops and the media saying, oh, he's caught. But there was still all this evidence saying that it could have been multiple people. Well, for one, all the sketches, mm -hmm. all of the sketch, sketch artist renderings of what the assailant looked like, they varied. And like Fordham didn't even look anything like Berkowitz. So if people question that, that would have been substantive because every time they're putting out a picture, it's like, yeah, he looks like this. And it's like, all right, one of the survivors of this new attack says he looks like this. And Later on, another one, he looks like this, and all of those look different. You know, that's, you know, ABC 7 News with the chief of police and the mayor that's putting this stuff out. So that's that's not a, like, conspiracy. It's because a lot of these people, they survived. And it's like, mm -hmm. this is not the person who shot me or shot this woman or man that I was with. Yeah, and they were getting like threatened. They're like, "No, this is it. You know, I, you were shot in your head. This is this is what happened." Uh, yeah, just with the uh, with going back to the, the actual documentary, uh, uh, Paul Giamatti voices. He was he was good, and he voices uh, Maury Terry. Um, it just it, I enjoyed it for the production wise. I enjoyed it for that. Uh, they showed a lot of footage of New York that I love seeing. Uh, they actually showed because Berkowitz and the writer and the other possible suspects were all from uh, Yonkers too so they showed like if you look at the map it's like right where I'm now uh, and then all the other murders too like uh, where, where where we both live so that, I like it for that fact too because it's like local and they showed like the mall near us they showed footage from the 50s and you know and I'm a big fan of uh, the late 70s early 80s New York City stuff and that's one of the alternative uh, you know theories is that had to do with uh, the part with the smut film, you know, there was a book I read and it was a fiction, but it was about oh. like a snuff film. Yeah. A snuff film. And um, like a, it was the same thing that they talked about here. It must've been based on it where it's like a producer uh, had all this uh, uh, snuff film and uh, you know, thrill videos and film. And there was a lot of substance, a lot of evidence towards pointing towards that. Uh, so um 
the letters that they that they write are so freaking like poetic and like gr- scarily like gr- like you know like uh morbid but they're also like beautifully written right like the synonyms and like the you know it's like po- very poetic so that's what i'm saying where it, it had to be somebody else it had to be like this whole organized thing so i believe that but who cares like to the point where like i know you uh the families would get like um you know just you know justice and everything from it but but the point of this documentary doesn't really give me anything except for the fact that these alternate theories are still very alive with everything else in the world like we brought up the joe rogan thing the QAnon people they just won't trust uh, the the um what's the word again like the, the the story like the um the accepted truth, but like they won't accept it. The accepted truth from this is that David Berkowitz was a 45 caliber killer. He's caught, the crimes ended. So he was son of Sam and that's it. And you know, he had also other, footage, other theories about Sam being uh, Sam Carr, uh, a neighbor. So you, had um, all this, you, have all this, you have all this evidence, but what do you do with it? You know? My thing is this like, it just proves that, like, you know, there's always going to be... Well, his point was that all of these people, they ended up dying. Mm-hmm. They ended up getting killed or killing themselves. And that was the thing, like, you know, Dave Berkowitz said that he was afraid to talk. He didn't want to name names or snitch or whatever, whatever, because his family would be in danger. Yeah, so if he actually does come out you know, and it does it, it it is like evidence that like he was caught and it wasn't like they pieced evidence together and like chose this person for one the guy's sister weedy car she was like the dispatch in the yonkers and she told the investigators that Dave Berkowitz was like this weirdo that killed her dog, but afterwards you still see the dog being alive and da da da. So she might have been um, running interference and pinning it all on him, knowing that the stuff that her brothers were involved in were something that, you know, he wouldn't flip on those two for four because this great bigger network would do something to the people he hold dearly and this is exactly like the jfk alternate theories where uh if you start from just that like the patsy you know like david berkowitz is like the patsy um you go off the network and there's this huge organized uh web and it, lead, it goes all the way to the top you know so that's the fear from this where like if they can they can just make us believe this uh like what else can they do like through like the media and and, and the authorities just saying this is it case closed uh th- you know threatening the media like saying like shut up you know this is it this is the this is the truth this is what happened and it's the same thing with the jfk thing and you know people still believe you know one man killed JFK and shot the governor, then, you know, the magic bullet and everything, but there's so much of this other evidence out there that, but the truth, like the, uh, you know, the, um, 
accepted story narrative is still has so many holes in it uh, you know pun, i mean a uh, figuratively and literally with uh, jfk that's why i thought we should bring it up and uh talk about it because uh, i could see this happening again where media can catch on to a story and um media like the newspapers and the radio were the only outlets then now we have all these other outlets so there's other things that can't be just case closed now everything's really open-ended because we have these different outlets mm-hmm. uh and i know we talked about uh having um all these other like serial killer stories in the last 10 years on like netflix like it's like oh like it's just like it's like uh like it's like porn for these people they love watching these like serial killers and like murder stuff i thought this one was different because um I took it on a different level where it had to do with uh, the people in charge and like the way things are sent out through the media where like, this is the accepted narrative. This is the facts, but yet there's all this other um, facts and everything that are just discredited or just ignored. It's too much for people to uh, handle. So they just spoon feed us this nice little wrapped up package. So the last few weeks we've been talking about A&E's new biography series, WWE legends, you know, we Stone Cold, Roddy Piper, Macho Man, Randy Savage, and we did Booker T last week. Now going into this week, it's someone in my top uh, my top list, my Mount Rushmore wrestling wrestlers. Uh, so going into this, I know a lot about him. Uh, I've seen the documentaries. I've seen the shooting reviews. I grew up watching them. So basically, I want to see what how they take his this man's career and how they structure it into a fun watch. And it's Shawn Michaels. All right, so right away in the cold open, they answer all my questions right away. They have all the heavy hitters. You got Triple H, of course. You got Nash, you got Austin, Undertaker. Uh, they had Terry Taylor, which was interesting. And the of course, you had, and you had the you have the big, the real Red Rooster, the big cock of the walk, Vince McMahon. And they showed up. They talked about a lot with uh, substance abuse and stuff. So I'm like, all right, here we go. They're gonna get into it. And it's Shawn Michaels in 2020 in NXT. So it's him today. And he's being very candid. Uh, he's talking about everything. And guess who else pops up? That was nice. Marty Jannetty. Oh, so Marty Jannetty. Oh, was a nice surprise to see him there and talking and stuff like that. If anybody knows, Marty Jannetty is like a bit of a out there guy. Um, I kind of like, like a wild card. So it was interesting to see him sitting there and not just, you know, for like a couple sections of it. He was actually talking about like everything like he was involved with. He he was talking about, you know, like and we, we talked about it and the, the Randy Savage thing. It was actually like felt like this one was like the Stone Cold one and the Roddy Piper one like mixed together as opposed to the Randy Savage one where it was like kind of like slanted and deprecating. This yeah. one was actually, it was, it was very raw and very real. It felt like a testimonial because of course uh, someone did die. The old Chomagos did die that they talk about a lot. They talked about him in a sense where he's not even here anymore. He, there's yeah. a new show, Michaels. After they said, they said yeah. in the in the opening, they said it's two lives, but one show, Michaels. Exactly. Um, one man who I didn't like seeing there because he's a little annoying twerp. Peter Rosenberg was involved. He oh, was yeah, the voice. Was, he, yeah. he was us in it. He was like uh, exposition guy. But 
Bret Hart was there and he was, he was good. It was good to see Bret Hart there because uh, a big chunk of this docu had to do with the late nineties, Montreal screw job. It's been done to death, of course. Um, but I, I liked it, you know, their, the way they took on, they took on that uh, topic. Um, so, you know, it's a very standard biography starts from the beginning. Uh, a lot of the stuff I knew and the stuff, why I know this is I read the book, which wasn't really good, but there was this episode of WWE Confidential from 2002 and they had his parents on it, Mr. and Mrs. Hickenbottom, and they had the footage on this and uh, sweet, sweet old couple. I like hearing from them, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think uh, about them? Yeah, his parents like gave him a hard time about pursuing a life of wrestling that's crazy because the both if you look at like both parents and you look at how Shawn Michaels looks now like he really like favors or as he got older like he favors both of his parents especially his father he looks like just like his dad but like in his later years in WWE like his dad but with long hair and they, they gave him like a hard time about the wrestling thing you know, it's no real line of work and they, you know, forced him to go to college and he straight up told us that. He was like, listen, like you're wasting my time and I'm wasting your money. Like, let me just do what I want to do. And boy, was he right? Because his dad, he realizes like, you know, I don't want to be that guy where, you know, 20 years at the time, like Shawn Michaels was like in his late night, in his late teens, early 20s he was like i don't want to be that guy like when my kids like in his 30s comes to me and it's like you know dad like you didn't let me live out my dream and now i'm miserable and i was one of the things that turned him you know in in into supporting him or at least allowing him to become a wrestler yeah and then he got the first break and that footage was cool it was mid-south uh it was awesome to see Shawn Michaels in the way where he's like the local guy. He's like the enhancement talent and he's getting thrown around by these straight up dudes, these men, like Ted, they showed Ted DiBiase, uh, Billy Jack Haynes. So just these massive guys, whatever, toss them around. But, uh, and they have Terry Taylor, who is a, uh, he's infamously known as like a stooge or whatever. Uh, he's always, he's always there. He's in all the stories. Like he's always somewhere. He's one of those guys that uh, kind of like in Game of Thrones, he's kind of like little finger. He's like, Apparently, he's like that type of individual. He's always there. Um, people find out things. Um, they usually point at him, but he, he tells everyone everything. Uh, but yeah, of course, like any other standard docu, it keeps going in their life. Um, I knew all about like the antics with like Marty Gennetti, um, that they talked about. So you know, you know, we, we don't have to get into that. I, I just I would like jump jump ahead to uh, the interviews they had with Bret Hart. And Macho Screwjob because um, they had Vince McMahon this time. Have you ever heard like Vince McMahon really openly, candidly talk about it? I can't recall. Yeah, like I always love like the story of like him getting punched in the face <laughs> by Bret Hart. Yeah, like, I mean, like, like nobody really likes to like talk about their L's, but he's like, yeah, like he, he knocked me the fuck out. And then when you hear Bret Hart talking about it, it's like. I didn't know what I was going to do, but like I hit him one time and he just never got up. <laughs> yeah. So I never like, um, I didn't even know about that. Cause I watched this recently and I always think about the Bret Hart and uh, oh, Vince McMahon face, you know, that whole thing. I thought about it like last week, 
uh, but I'm glad they they had a brand new brand new audio and video of Bret Hart and Vince t- acknowledging it. You know, uh, they also talk about another big moment. This part was cool. They talk about the current call. All right, so they every they always talk about it and stuff, but um, they always show that grimy, the grainy video of them hugging at MSG. As if you know, if you don't know, in uh, May '96, um, there's a part where uh, two wrestlers left the company for another one, and some fans knew, some some didn't, and uh, the four wrestlers, Shawn Michaels included, Triple H, they all embrace, even though their characters hate each other. Half of them hated the other half. So that's basically the gist of it. But no one would have known about this. People in the audience would have known, but there's these these kids that we've seen a, a few things on these guys over the years. But these kids snuck in a camera, camcorder, into the, the garden, and they filmed it. Uh, so they have, like, the full video of it somewhere. Uh, I know the network did something with it recently, too. Uh, so it's awesome to have that. They acknowledged it, and they showed it. Now they're like, hey, they're owning it, you know. Uh, so that was kind of cool to show that they showed case that in this docu. Um, but then they, they jumped to Ric Flair and him talking about it now, like a new video of him talking about it, like how, man, if this was the seventies or eighties, we like beat the shit out of these guys, you know, this is like, you know, that was cool to have Ric Flair talk about that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, it's weird when people talk about it now, if you're talking to a person that became into wrestling in the 2010s because everything is out there. You could go on people's social medias, the Instagram, the Twitters. Um, you could look up all these guys' like backgrounds and stuff like that. But back in the 90s, it wasn't like that. Like the internet was barely a thing back then. Um, yeah. So it, it, it definitely, like, people don't understand how sacred the business was because, like, a lot of these guys, like, they would go to, like, in the 80s, like, they'd go on, like, a bear run together, like, the heel and, like, the baby face. And they'd wait till, like, the store's about to close and it's just, like, the clerk to go into the store and get their bears and stuff. And if one person walked in, like, a customer... There'll be, you know, well, like the clerk, they will give them like a, like slip them like an extra 20 and be like, listen, you didn't see us in here together. But if like some random dude walked in, like some frat kids or something like that, like those two dudes would start like play fighting or something like that to make it seem like, you know, they didn't intend to be in our store together because it was our secret, like keeping, you know, the faces and the heels, you know, opposite of each other when in real life they really had to work very closely with each other and you know at times used to be like the best of friends yeah speaking of uh information being out for for fans back then i had printer paper uh from my mom's job and we printed out this stuff on the internet like one of her co-workers and it was like the real names it'd be like you know say like uh one two three kid and like sean waltman and this shit was like oh my god it was like uh Dead Sea Scrolls to me, like finding all this information. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, you remember like the Scholastic Book Fair? Yeah. Like I remember how like this little like comic book material type of thing. And it was like the background of wrestling or something like that. And it had all the guys like names 
and it was like so poorly done that like mm-hmm. Undertaker's name was in there as like Mark. They forgot the Y on Callaway. So I was like, oh, Undertaker's real name is Mark Callawa. Yeah. <laughs> and then like I saw like Shawn Michaels' name. I was like, Michael Hickenbottom. I was like, this can't be like true. And Stone Cold's real name was like Steve Williams. Mm. And all that stuff and it blew my mind. Kip Sop. I knew <laughs> Kip Sop, Ma- Monty Sop. Yeah, I knew about that too. Uh I knew Shawn Michaels hated his name. Like in his book. He, yeah, he wrote I mean, his first it's like yeah, that sometimes, yeah. Yeah, so like you know, call him Sean, whatever. But he was an army brat, so he would move all the time. So every time like every school year basically he was in a new town uh, or a new school at least. So I knew all that stuff, but the the way he talked in this in this interview, Shawn Michaels, uh I haven't really been a big fan of him lately. Like in the last, I, I, I kind of like haven't really thought about him a lot lately. And I kind of like the guy, you know, I'm like as a, the way he was talking to me, like he was getting really personal and uh, I was like feeling for him. I've never seen him so open about it where um, like, you know, the whole thing with his faith and everything, but he was talking about how, how lonely he was in the eighties. He never talked about it, like comparing himself to like an Elvis or like a Freddie Mercury where like he never got that deep of talking about being alone and he said, if he had, uh, if he had a gun that night, he would have ended it that night. You know, Marty Gennetti's like, yeah, he, I got in trouble because I had to stay out because Shawn Michaels didn't want to go to bed because he's on coke and everything. Never really seen Shawn Michaels uh, talk about his drugs and of choice and everything. He all he would say is, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. Uh, that was back then. That was my old self. But this here, he was talking about it more real, and he was saying um, uh, all that stuff. And then another one, another uh, instance was Triple H saying. Uh, Shawn Michaels once told him that he goes, "Oh, I wish the I, I wish I had enough pills to end it after WrestleMania 10. I'd be the biggest star." That's some dark sh- stuff. Remember he said that in the docu? That was some dark stuff. And I go, oh, "I'd be the most famous uh, superstar now. I'd be uh, the most famous person now." And can you argue with him? If that actually did happen, Shawn Michaels would have been like, "There was a documentary that came out last week about Brian Pillman. Barely anyone has ever seen anything about him, but they all, they all know his name, you know." So just that, Shawn Michaels being so open about that, and so and it's such a dark topic. Um, I was surprised by that. I didn't expect it. To, I thought it'd be more like uh, sugar coated, because uh, Shawn Michaels was a really dark guy. Um, they got into uh, when his career ended, because they show all the times that like he ended his. Oh, I have to step away from the ring, and it's like a joke where like I lost my smile. Yeah, because um, when I, when I first got into wrestling. Shawn Michaels was the commissioner mm-hmm. of the WWF. And our, this was during the time, like, Stone Cold was trying to get his belt back. And I, you know, through my little research and stuff like that, and looking at the back of, like, the VHS tapes at Blockbuster and stuff like that, seeing, like, WrestleMania 14, I was like, oh, like, Shawn Michaels used to be a wrestler. Okay, like WrestleMania 12. Oh, him and... Oh, Bret Hart from WCW. He used to be in WWF, like that type of stuff. And I didn't know about him as a wrestler, which kind of like brings me to to my thing where I, I felt like his return in, 20, in 2002 up until 2010 when he retired, I thought it was his best run. Because I've seen his stuff from the 90s, and it's great. But I think, like, in a, the 2000s and the end of his career, I think, like, he had the best years of his career because I think that's when he started to appreciate 
I think the fact that his back was so messed up that he had to walk away from the business and he was taking all these painkillers just to walk around because I read it. I read his book, the book mm-hmm. that was re- re- um, released through WWE books yeah. that he wrote. And a lot of the things that was brought up in this thing, I forgot about um, that I read in the book. And I remember him saying, like, he used to wait. And I wait, like, I'm a person, I have a lot of back pain and stuff like that. So I could only imagine waking up every day and just having to take a whole bunch of, like, pain pills to just, you know, not want to kill yourself every day from this back pain to go in to WrestleMania 1920 all the way up until 26 and having like great matches. It's, it's really, it's truly significant. That, like virtually every match that he had at WrestleMania is from the time he returned in, in 2002 up until his retirement. The only like eh, match was the one he had against um Vince at WrestleMania mm. 22. That was really it. Like all of his WrestleMania Man. matches were classics. Him and Jericho. Um, him, Triple H, and Benoit, him and Kurt Angle, him and Ric Flair, him and Undertaker, him and Undertaker again, like great. Oh, and John Cena Mm -hmm. at 23, like great matches, great matches. Yeah, um, and I mentioned before, like they alluded to him saying, like, suicidal things, like, oh, I should take the pills and stuff. So he's a case where it's like the what if actually was realized. The what if of oh what if this guy didn't overdose or he he came back? What if this guy did? Shawn Michaels did. He's the actual case where four, four and a half years went by, and he came back and he had a longer career, you know, in the WWF than he had prior to that. You know, he had like eighty eight to ninety eight, and then he had two thousand two to like twenty ten. He had like a whole stretch, um, and some people only remember that stuff from him, uh, which is you saw him only during that live, mm-hmm. uh, but. Like, um, it was fun as well. I mean, like, you see me here, like, I have my Degeneration X shirt. I'd never, until 2006, I'd never seen, I, I had to watch like old videos of Shawn Michaels with DX. I'd never seen the Shawn Michaels DX outside of the time when Triple H and him did like the fake reunion and he, he attacked them. Like, mm. It, it, I've never, I've never seen it. So 2006 was probably like the most exciting, you know, DX reuniting was like the most excited I'd been watching wrestling like post Attitude Era. Yeah, but like the thing with after WrestleMania 14, um, like he did, he 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 did the job. They were even nervous that he was going to do that because he was such a loose cannon. He was so crazy, uh, or not crazy, but he was so. Um, uh, over you know you couldn't really control him you didn't know what he was gonna do next when he was so when he was sober he was fine like vince talking about that it was a great moment you have vince talking about him in this in this way because yeah, people have jokes about vince and sean like sean had the job the reason why and stuff but they showed that they're actually like that that, that 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 dynamic they had like it was a business but it was also personal and um i like that they were they were showing things about sean about uh like even in the 80s he had these like the uh these dark uh thoughts about himself and like this 
he was like shy like he he didn't like himself as a person things like that and um it really humanized him more than uh just the stuff people say about him as like a, as a performer and everything uh, so the whole 98 to 2002 he was still on con he was still uh contracted by wwf so he wouldn't go elsewhere um but he would have like the commissioner role and i was so excited every time he would show up there's that one moment where he gets thrown into a, a car uh, and i was like devastated it was like like um late 98 early 99 and he, he got destroyed by someone you find out later on, I was like DX or whatever, but I was so like, oh my God, I crushed. Now looking back, I realized he, he came back like a couple months later anyway. He kept coming back. Um, they kept giving him chances. And there's a thing where he fell, he passed out at one of the WrestleManias. And then he, that was like, like rock bottom. He disappeared. And thank God he found God. I mean, thank God that mm -hmm. he found something to live for, which was much like Booker T. He yeah. ended up with a Nitro uh, girl and uh, even in 2002, when they had that confidential uh, episode, a lot of the footage came from, um, he, he really was saved, you know, his life. And then we had the second act of Shawn Michaels that thankfully he wasn't one of the ones that we lost. So many of them. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because my mother made me, she said, she, she made me mention that that's the reason. She said, make sure you mention when you're doing this HBK part that, you know, that's the reason she loves HBK because he turned his life over to God. But in all seriousness, though, like, I'm always inspired by people who turn their life around, especially when you hear about, like, the before and then you hear about the after. Um... One of the people is like, and it ain't even so much as God, it's about religion. Like, you've seen Malcolm X's life before he found the Nation of Islam, and then the great work that he did when he did find the Nation of Islam. It's like the same thing with, like, HBK. I think, like, him, you know, doing all that, that wild stuff in the 90s, and basically just being, like, a prima donna and all that shit. Um, and then turning around in his personal life and you know having a family and having kids and really starting to appreciate life and then coming about coming back and then appreciate because uh, the, the the one thing you learn from that a and d a and e documentary is that he loved wrestling as a fan as a participant and today, as like a you know person behind the scenes, like he loves the wrestling business, and I think the fact that he found God, he learned how to appreciate wrestling because he was given a second chance. And in in the episode, I mean, I don't know how true it is, but in the episode, it was presented. Like all of a sudden, like he started going to Bible study and all that pain in his back just disappeared. And I don't know, maybe perhaps it did, but that's what enabled him to come back and wrestle. And the person that he trusted the most was the person he came back with, which was um, Paul Levesque, Triple H. And one of the things it was brought up in the story, and I actually had forgotten about it because he talked about it in his book was him having this, this shouting match with triple H where he was like cussing at him and calling him names and stuff like that. And 
it's very personal to me. And Mike, whenever you do this, I hope you keep this part in the video because I've been there where I've gotten into these dark places and I lashed out at my friends. I've lashed out at Mike. I've lashed out with my boy Ant. I've even lashed out at Joel and stuff like that, like unwarranted. And I read this book when I was 14 before I was an adult and you have like these adult friendships and him bringing about that part back up. I think I read it back then, but I understood it when he talked about it because that situation there, it made me start to appreciate these people that I've like blocked out on. And that point was kind of like the turning point because Kevin Nash was on there and he was bringing it up. And it's like, when was the last time you talked to Paul? And he said, you know, Shawn Michaels was like, you know, change the subject or stuff like that. And it happened real randomly that they started like talking to each other back again. And that conversation helped them become comfortable enough for him to come back and have to me, the greatest run of his career. Yeah. And again, with the, uh, the pain, um, I thought it was from this, but it's actually from another interview that happened recently. Uh, check it out. It's a uh, Chris Van Vliet. He had, uh, someone who was a, uh, a subject matter on dark side two weeks ago, uh, Nick Gage. So he started taking pills, uh, first off, just cause of the pain from doing these death matches. And it led him down this path of, uh, he robbed the bank. And um, so when he stopped taking them and he started, uh, when he was in jail and prison, uh, he, he realized that like taking the pills, the painkillers were causing pain. Like he had that addiction to it. So like the, the painkillers were causing, a, was causing pain. So this reminds me of Shawn Michaels where when he, when he stopped with them, uh, he started feeling better. Like kind of the pills themselves are causing pain. That this case, I have a personal stuff with that stuff too. So it is true where you, it's like a craving for it, and it becomes its own thing where like it's supposed to be helping you, and it's just causing more pain. And Shawn Michaels addressed it in this, which was great. And that's why I always say people joke around about why, but I think like a big part of it was the substance abuse was why he was gone for so long because he kept coming back doing a he did things in Japan and stuff in '99. Um, but it, him being able to compete wasn't worth him risking because he was going down the path. He was going to be he was going to be Kurt Henning. He was going to be like Brian Pillman. He was the next one, and uh, you know he, he he's still here and he's and he's here with NXT. These young kids and um, the last thing I'll say about this Shawn Michaels thing is the 2020 footage of NXT. Really cool to see him backstage and they show um, all the background guys. They have like Chris, I mean uh, Steve Carino. Uh, Lord Tenzai, you know, he used to be uh, Prince Albert. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the way they do it now. It's like a lot of people, old school guys, are like they don't like it, but they show this the shot where they're breaking down the previous nights, like Takeover, and people like old purists would be like, "Oh man, that's not wrestling, whatever." whatever. To me, that looks like exactly like how the car ride home would be. You know, they always talk about it after the show. They talk in the car. The boys would talk about the match in the car. Hey, what could we do ne- next time? That's the same exact thing of them being in that little trailer, breaking down uh, footage like a football game, but they're doing it in this environment that's not them drinking beers and downing uh, uh, muscle relaxers in the back of a car. They're doing it in this 
safe environment uh, at the PC center, the uh, performance center. Mm-hmm. So I feel like um, the best parts of the fraternity or, you know, just a, a being in this world, it was always like uh, t- right into the next town. Now they've kind of brought it to this new thing where they do it in the facility and um, none of the other pitfalls are there now, really. You know, you don't have the the scene like whether in the hotel and Roddy Piper was egging them on the fight and then uh yeah, I'll, I'll, ma- ma- yeah I did want to bring that up because I'm like it was one of them things where it was played out on screen through um through the show but you know with the the Bruce beat the Brutus Beefcake Barbershop mm. through the plate glass window, but when in reality it was like Roddy Piper was like, yeah, like Sean, you're you're gonna be a star, you're good, da da da. But like Marty, we gotta work on you, and you know while they were on drugs, that's that's one of the things that got them like you know fighting with each other and and stuff like that, but. <laughs> The parts I did like in the in in the A and E biography was um, take a call on peckerheads, <laughs> yeah, which was like a dickhead. Um, something they didn't like talk about was, you know, Sean, the 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 famous like Sean Michaels music, which I sing to myself randomly like every day. Um. It was Sensational Sherry that was singing the original version of it. And they actually brought Sean in and they were telling him to do like ad libs for like a, you know, something that was more like, you know, mid 90s, like rock, like grunge, like to make a new theme song instead of the um, Sexy Boy song. It was like no, like I, 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 no, like I could, I, I assume because they couldn't use like sensational Sherry's voice anymore, so he came in. It was like no, I'll sing over all the parts, and it became like Shawn Michaels' music, all until like the end of his career, except mm. for the times like you know he was in Degeneration X. I was that shit was cool because it was like it's like no, nah, man, like I'll, I'll sing it. <laughs> that's Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart's the that's the one exception i'm always a, a jim johnson guy but jimmy hart did that one so that's all the you know, mouth of south all due respect uh but yeah so the rockers breaking up montreal screw job uh even the triple h stone and uh show michaels at 2002 these are kind of like real life situations playing out in the ring or you know not in the ring but like on tv so a lot of the stuff personal stuff that was happening between him and marty were like they were towing and the next step, they played that out as tag teams, the characters on TV. The screw job with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels having these issues, you know, played out on TV and then they, life imitating art, art imitating life. That happened and then became this baiting with Macho screw job. Triple H uh, and Shawn Michaels had a falling out in real life and then they played it out where they had their reunion on, you know, on camera at the SummerSlam 2002 when they actually had the match. That was like a, uh, you know, a symbolic version, a symbolic or like a figure of them, of them reuniting, you know, like, uh, because they're wrestlers and you know, professional wrestlers, they feel most comfortable, like, you know, performing. 
and uh, it just shows that things acted played out on on TV, which was a uh, kind of cool. I like that; it's very poetic to me. But we know what happened next. The guy uh, who Show Michaels idolized. There's a picture of him pretending to be Ric Flair. He ends up having the most iconic moment in wrestling, almost with. I, I'm sorry. I love you. And ending Ric Flair's career in the ring at WrestleMania. Um, I mean, that's a storybook ending, if anything, right? Yeah. And he got he got his storybook ending too at um, WrestleMania 26. Like everybody knew he was going to lose the match, but you were intrigued because you know you thought you everybody was intrigued because they had like the greatest match probably of like the decade in WrestleMania um 25th anniversary WrestleMania uh, in Houston so it's like how were they gonna follow that and then they still ended up following it up with like a really great match and HBK got to retire and you got to see him walk in the back and all of these guys like shaking his hand and the next night on Raw he, him getting to say goodbye and it was like an emotional moment to me because, like I said, I, I'd never seen him wrestle. So I'd always been inspired by the fact that he was able to come back. And it's been motivational for me in my career. It's like, you know, sometimes your, your second half is sometimes a lot better than your first half. So don't count yourself out. Right. And, uh, it was, yeah, you're right. That was a beautiful moment, Rick Flair. And also uh, he had his reunion with Bret Hart on, on TV, too. So uh, professionally and personally, Shawn Michaels tied up all his loose ends and he made amends, which is a very Christian thing, you know, um, you know, like forgiveness and like uh, making amends with someone. A lot of these uh, played out on film, on TV. He made amends with Marty Jannetty when Marty Jannetty came back for a while uh, in the 2000s. Um, you know, Bret Hart, Marty Jannetty, Triple H, uh, he was able to, he's, he looks happy. Out of all these tragic stories of uh, wrestling, um, this documentary had hints of it, the dark side of it. But at the end, he seems pretty happy. You know, living in Orlando, working at NXT with his best friend. The shot of him laughing with Triple H with the microphone and the headphones on. You, you love to see that. And you mentioned how he does, but he looks exactly like Mr. Hickenbottom. He looks like his father. He finally made a transformation into Mad, Mad Dog Chris Russo, too. He looks exactly like Mad Dog Chris Russo from the Mike and the Mad Dog show. And I always joked about that. But when he cut his hair off, now he looks exactly like him. And he lives in Florida, too. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, we got Ultimate Warrior next week. This is going to be a real, real double-duty thing for us because Dark Side also has their own Warrior documentary coming out next week. So uh, we got to put on our uh, wrestling hats, literally, you know, figuratively for the next one. And then we have McFoley way down. And then we're going to wrap up this series that we've been doing. So it's all exciting. Final thoughts, Mike. We've talked about him a few times on the show, but now we had to formally give our tribute to Mr. Paul Mooney. Um, I think it was a great way to start off our show because in the next topics we talked about, uh, a lot of the things that he did during his career, uh, a good 40 year career was about like putting the mirror to Hollywood and uh, media and going against the grain. 
Uh, he even said himself that he's been doing this forever. Hollywood just caught up and they're acting like it was their idea. Uh, but he was at the, he was the pioneer in uh, not just about like race or no, just, just in general, just being truthful and putting the mirror back to society, which is the best form of stand-up comedy for me is, is uh, that, that the ability to make yourself laugh at yourself and the world at whole. And, um, he, he was the one who did it for me too. Uh, out of all my top five guys, he was always up there. Um, and he influenced a lot of people that would be your favorite person. Um, uh, so Mr. Paul Mooney, 79 years old. Uh, we still have all, all his work to watch and I'm sure a lot of his stuff wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be uh, allowed today because he was doing this way back when and ahead of his time. He talked about things about media representation and that led to our other topic with Bachelor, Bachelorette, a, a franchise that's been on television for 20 years, almost, since we were kids. We grew up on this. These are institutions now. It's like American Idol. Uh, so what people see on TV with the brand of Bachelor and Bachelorette, it's important. Uh, it's not just another reality show. Um, it's an American institution where things have to change in a way that it's organic, not forced. It has to be genuine. Uh, and we're still working towards that with former contestants speaking out now. Matt, uh, uh, Matt's still under contract, you know, uh, so you have to hold out on what his, his experience because he's still under the banner uh so we'll see about that with uh his personal experience will come out or he'll stay with the company and uh continue to you know be another contracted contracted you know uh cast member and on future shows and uh talking uh talking points talking i mean uh figurehead talking heads supporting uh, the bachelor all right so the sons of sam documentary uh it was very layered, the meaning behind it, I thought. That's why I wanted to talk about it because, of course, it's about a serial killer uh, at face value. Um, oh, my God, how many of these do we need? How many Berkowitz stories do we need? Well, I work with Zoomers, and they had no idea who this person was. They had no idea about the 45 killer. They had no idea about Summer of Sam, which came out 20 years ago. The movie with Spike Lee made. Even that, they didn't even know. Uh I asked about it and they're like, oh, yeah, there was, there was a blackout, right? Yeah, I think so. Like they, they don't know anything about this. So it's good that uh, every so often, every generation gets a new, uh, you know, a new version of it. Uh, this time, I thought it was deeper because um, it talked about uh, the possibilities of it being uh, not so open and shut as the way we're, we've been taught, taught it uh, through like uh, – the other documentaries as we grew up. But I didn't want to talk about just for the crimes. I want to say that the media and you know the authority they have they're very powerful in the way that the, the truth, you know, is is uh written. Um the narrative, the accept the truth. Uh you can just move on and be like, all right, this is what happened. Uh if that was the case, something that you're very passionate about, the Central Park Five that would have been open and shut and we wouldn't have talked about it. But if you leave it open to uh, other theories, then the cases can get reopened. And let's say Parkwitz is like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And this whole time we're like, no, 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 no. 
if let's say in this case he was trying to you know hey, he didn't do it at all let's just say then these alternate you know things would have been out there and then you could be opened well very he, similar to well that's, that's the thing that makes me um about this case and i mentioned mention it when we were talking about it it's not like berkowitz is trying to like get off from the whole son of Sam thing. He's trying to let it be known that like he did like two or three of those things, but there were other people involved. Yeah. Whereas the difference from a lot of other things where it's just like, it's the person where all the evidence is, or at least like some evidence is behind them doing some of the things and they're trying to get off of everything. Why I brought up too with uh, the idea of the satanic uh atmosphere to a lot of these uh, crime possibilities of other people involved that led to the cr uh, crimes in the 90s where it was still uh the narrative was these the west memphis three these kids these teenagers they were outcasts they're like okay let's they were there in the area um open and shut case they're the ones that did it let's move on but what about this information over here no no, no. it's too much for the community they don't want to be living in fear it was these three kids and that's it but with a documentary and a few installments, installments over the years on HBO, uh, it led to the three kids who were in their late 30s by the end. They had like some, one guy got married, had kids in prison. They eventually got out. Uh, and now the, a lot of them, what they do is they speak out on uh, false confessions. So a documentary led to people uh, being more aware of false confessions. Uh, so just in the idea of why I keep bringing things up why make another documentary? We've, we know all about it. But no, a lot of people, uh, it's the first time they're hearing about this. And there could be a case or there could be something that we have this accepted truth of this is what happened. But we don't know. Check this out. We have this whole other information that someone worked their lives on. Uh, it can open, it can, it could lead to this oldest other stuff of corruption in, in, let's say, New York. Like, hey, that one head of the, the police chief, you know, uh, it could lead to other crimes of, hey, maybe they covered this up. And it, it, the whole uh, the can of worms. And also, of course, uh, we always have to have a little pro wrestling, um, A&E's biographies. Hit or miss. I mean, they've been definitely um, entertaining. Um, more so, we've, we've enjoyed all of them. Uh, the Macho Man one was controversial because it was kind of like Okay, um, the man can't defend himself. This seems over the top, just like bashing him. Uh, a little, a little. Um, uh, since 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 we talked about Macho Man two weeks ago, uh, the, Randy Savage's brother actually finally spoke out, and he basically just said what me and Shug were saying about it. Uh, so that was good that he was able to talk. Uh, but with Shawn Michaels, there wasn't much uh, anything new I was looking for from it i just i appreciated the way they presented all the facts that i kind of already knew uh well, i'd be a super fan um i'm happy for him uh he seems happy um you know people are hard on uh, uh hard on nxt you know like but i think it's way safer environment that these people are working in uh than people like Shawn michaels where it was so wild west and Yo almost lost a man. He almost many times he talked about killing himself or, you know, oh man, I'd live forever if I was like Elvis, you know, 
die young, you know, I'd be, I'd be famous forever, but he was able to get that second chapter, get that second act, you know, and he proved, uh, he proved that he could, uh, he could still do it without the dart, the other Michael, because, uh, you know, Shawn Michaels said, and Triple H summed it up perfectly in the first few minutes. He said there was, uh, you know, two Shawn Michaels and, you know, one, you know, one, one life, whatever. So I'm looking forward to the next ones. And with sports, uh, either next week we'll be uh, we'll find out more about um, the Knicks with the uh, with the first round of the playoffs and everything else. So we're, I'm excited for that. And uh, it's just been a long time, man. I can't believe that me and you were me and Chuck were early twenties with last time the Knicks were doing their thing, man. We're we're old men now, so we gotta we gotta be ready for tomorrow. Watch the game, Chug. Yeah, man. Um, Joe Rogan. White people have been getting away with a lot of shit for the entirety of like human existence. So, what you're calling cancel culture and woke mobs is just called consequences. Um, Rachel Lindsay, Tasha Adams, I apologize to you. I do not apologize to Matt because you're a damn idiot for shacking up with a damn racist. Um, but like I said, I, I mean, if they were picking dudes that don't even like black girls and they are black, like dumb, you know, the bachelor casting directors are jackasses and they shouldn't be trust, trusted with, you know, dealing with people of color. And if you can't deal with people of color, you shouldn't be a show that's being broadcast in the 2020s. So ABC whoever's in charge of The Bachelor, do better. Get some people of color, Blacks, Asians, Latinos, LGBT, all that shit. Um, get them in charge of your, you know, doing your show. Got to see my first no-hitter. Exciting time. Check that out on YouTube. Check out all our shit on YouTube. We drop, like, a whole lot of content. They got a video that's dropping today as you're hearing this. On May 24th, my birthday, I'm 31 years old. So please be kind and wish me a happy birthday. And you could give me a birthday present by watching all our content and listen to, listening to all our content and also sharing. Sharing is caring. That's how we can get bigger. That's how we can grow. That's how we can sell merchandise. That's how we can sell the shirt that's behind Mike right now or shook me in a moony shirt and that's why how we could spin off the other different shirts but Mike it's a very special episode it's dropping on my birthday I'm excited because everybody's telling me I'm getting a gift and they're telling me that I'm gonna like it so I know I'm gonna like it because they always telling me I'm gonna like it because they're like hey you get nothing and you'll like it so I'm getting nothing and I like it for my birthday um son of sam a lot of interesting stuff with that um check out that series if you'd like um we're gonna keep doing our a and e biographies like i said hbk i'm very very am like very very inspired by his whole life i continue to be Knicks, I hope we, by the time you listen to this, Knicks are up 1-0. 
to the Hawks. And I hope by the next episode, we'll be up 2 or 3 0. I don't know how the scheduling is because they're playing like three games over like seven days or four games over eight days. But I'm optimistic because this team has been breaking expectations all season. But this has been episode 53 of Shug Me the Mooney, Shug Me Paul Mooney. Remember, you don't got to sugarcoat shit because they didn't sugarcoat shit for us. And this has been Shug Me the Mooney, Shug Me the Mooney, Shug Me the Mooney.